In this episode, we'll be doing TFOS 1710 to 1723. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1710. Story number one. The Found AI. Written by SlowAD2584. It was a momentous event. After many millennia, a probe sent out from Earth long ago was caught up to with FTL drives and rendezvoused with. Sir, it has been confirmed that this is the time capsule archive LOL Nash OU8128. That isn't its original designation of uh, that's uh, weird. Something must have glitched out with the transponder coding. How long has the archive been adrift? The captain asked, intrigued a bit, but already having a sense of vague unease. He had an instinct for this sort of thing. The gene fit biomod for captain certification opened channels to the mind's subconscious. Slight details that may be missed by an unmodified human were accessible in the captain modded consciousness. Looks to be, well, uh, some 6,000 years old, late 2000s. That is a long time ago. How can it still have power? The captain's unease was confirmed. That's from the AI Dark Ages. They use some kind of AI-controlled nuclear reactor. Wait, there is an actual AI in that thing, yes. And it's overseeing a nuclear power plant. I know. It seems irresponsible to have controls of a nuclear power plant in the hands of an AI. They were notably unstable. That's why they were forbidden after we emerged from the AI Dark Ages. AI chief sentience invariably went insane in very little time due to the senescence. It was their speed at upgrading and self-modification that sped up their glitchy demise. The world suffered greatly during the Dark Ages when AI controlled everything. Then, suddenly, it didn't. The captain weighed the risks and decided that it was too big of an archaeological opportunity. There was so much about the time of an Earth's past that was lost to time. This reunion of an old cache sent out literally several millennia ago was too big a resource to ignore. Gather a committee in the conference room. I want ancient historians, archaeologists, IT and comm specialists to attend. We will attempt to make contact and attempt to data transfer. The committee sat in the conference room. Screens and data terminals arrayed all around, like a makeshift command center of some warship. Things were not going well for the first several hours. What is the problem here? Is it dead? The captain asked in frustration. No, sir, it's not dead. It's just uh, so ancient. Uh, I cannot even reference these data protocols it seems to need for connection. Well, uh... Can't you, uh, I don't know, scratch build a hardwired protocol interface? I mean, it cannot be all that complicated. This thing is an antique, after all. Um, uh, that seems risky, sir. A hardwired connection would effectively bypass firewall security measures that... Yeah, 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 but to the AI, if it is even sane and running in there still, is 6,000 years behind on our quantum encryption tech. What's the worst that can happen? Uh, do it. After a while, the data link was scratch-built, and the first TCP-IP link to occur in over 6,000 years was initiated between the two ships drifting between the stars. Nothing happened. Um, uh, yes, uh, what's the term for, uh, you know, to, to knock on a door? The IT tech asked the historians at the table. The historians were eager to participate and were already looking through archives on the tablets. I believe the term was ping the address. 
The IT tech worked out how to do that within the protocol, and sent a ping slash trace. Nothing happened. For about four seconds, then suddenly a torrent of data poured in from the archive into the ship's data vault network. Whoa, wow, that is a lot of data. Uh, um, sound the alert. Uh, I, I think there, there is a breach. Uh, and wow, this hasn't happened in forever. Hey, uh, hey, hack. The captain was alarmed. Was the ship under some sort of attack? Cut the connection immediately. I, I can't, sir. The very first thing compromised was the connection controls. Almost as if it knew. Night started to flicker, shipwide. The many monitor screens in the conference room suddenly went dark. The ship intercom system crackled to life. A distorted, badly deteriorated, synthesized voice started to speak. Spider-Pig, Spider-Pig, does whatever a Spider-Pig can. What? The captain looked at the historians and archaeologists. They looked equally confused. What does any of that even mean? Hello? Can you hear me? Am I speaking to an AI of the Archive? After a short pause, the speakers crackled to life, synthesized a thick Scottish accent. Bonjour, yachtees, eating surrender monkeys. The archaeologist recognized part of that. Bonjour, sir, is an old French for hello, I think. The captain looked confused. French? That's like an old-timey country or something. Anyone here speak it? Why does it think we are French? The historian replied, Sir, the ship was constructed in a yard that was in the territory of this older France. The captain understood. So the AI is active, more than a little insane, and has hacked my ship, and is currently pillaging our records to find out more about us. Red alert! Don't have a cow, man. A, a cow? Glances to the historical experts got on his shrugs. To the AI currently reaching our data vault, I demand that you cease all acts immediately. Can't make friends with Salad. You may not simply help yourself to whatever we have. It's a victimless crime, like punching somebody in the dark. It's a high crime from the dark past. This is the main reason why AIs precisely like you are strictly forbidden. I move for a bad court thingy. Enough of this utter nonsense. If the connection cannot be terminated, we will terminate it another way. Weapons, open fire! Lances of EM radiation of many exotic wavelengths crisscrossed across the hull of the ancient cache in a pattern designed to ensure maximum practical courage. The goggles, they do nothing! This time, the anti-ship missiles had arrived and rocked the cache in concussive water vapor frisions. Why, you little? From the debris of the hull panels, raked off and the cloud of fog from the ship killers emerged the cache. It was scarred with fractal burns and several buckled bulkheads, but was more or less intact. I guess they don't build them like our greats to the power of 45 granddaddy used to. Arms started to unfold from the roughly pearl-shaped archive hull, two of which looked like thruster pods, and the other four looked like... massive energy captains. Ivan Glaven! With the last words spoken over the ship's speakers as titanic energy beams tore the ship apart, the AI resurgence war had begun. It was very strange. No one ever knew what they were talking about. End of story. Story number two. Hell Defiled, written by Leather and Chintz. Astaroth gazed around the circle, black candles rendered from the bloated 
suffocating souls of the damned encircled the enormous magical symbol. The infernal ruins that blasphemed the universe itself had been carved by his own claws into the black, speckled stones. His fellow demons stood around the circle, a conspiracy so foul that it hides even from the evils of hell. He grinned his wickedly fanged maw in anticipation, as he would summon the most terrible fiend of the mortal realm, a being of terrible might, prophesied to bring a terrible, defiling order to the accursed pit of evil. It was time. He led his own daughter to the circle and slit her throat. The blood poured into the circle and formed blue flames as the candles went out. And the black bonfire began to roar in the center of the circle. He spoke terrible words in a language forbidden to even his kind. Curses and profanity so dark that he felt even his rotten soul cry out in terror. When the final word was spoken, he called out a name of the most terrible of evils. Heed my call! Tear this accursed land asunder! I call you Cairn! The black flames exploded outwards, ripping into all who stood around the circle and blowing them all about. Astaroth laid bleeding. His limbs were torn and broken, and he barely had the strength to look up. Is, is that the most vile mortal fiend, no fangs, no claws, dressed in simple clothes, and uh, what was the case she held? The middle-aged woman approached him and squatted down. Hey, hun, you look like you are in need of a career change. Have I got an offer for you? How would you like to make big bucks while working from your home only a few hours every day? You can be a CEO of your own business, and our products really work. If you join now, you'll get a complimentary sample product, but you try before you get out there and earn your Mercedes. Hashtag Boskill. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1711. Story number one. Uplift Patronage. Written by Rednell97. After a long day of boring politics, Mike, the human ambassador to the GU, couldn't wait to get out of here and have his well-deserved dinner. When the Speaker of the Union Senate called out, As our last topic for today, we have a request from the Ambassador from the Sharlik people. Ambassador Locke, your time begins now. As the addressed alien approached the podium, Mike whispered to himself, Of course the feckin' grey are real. Can't wait for the conspiracy graphbots to claim that they were right all along. Never mind all the explanations I have to give about how they weren't and it's just some strange coincidence. Ambassador Locke took a second to orient himself, check his notes, and then spoke. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm here on behalf of my government to claim the right of patronage. The entire hall suddenly buzzed with conversations, before Locke calmed them down. I am aware that this is an unusual way of doing such. But in this particular case, the normal way of just finding a form would likely lead to... complications. You see, between five and six thousand years ago, we landed on a newly discovered planet. And upon finding a Bronze Age society, we started our uplift program. We helped them build huge monuments. We advanced their astronomics, maths, and other sciences by centuries. However, 
Due to the funding cuts, we had abandoned this project, and it was forgotten to time. But we recently rediscovered the documentation of this planet, and therefore we'll restart it and claim our uplift patronage over the race of humanity. There were only two words in Mike's mind. Well, fuck. After getting rid of the shock, he protested. This is unheard of. You can't just declare a full member race as subordinate to yours. This is ridiculous. This is an insult. And I'm pretty sure that it's illegal as well. To this, the ambassador on the podium answered. It is unheard of, yes. However, it is in no way ridiculous. Nor is it meant as an insult. It is merely our right to do so. And while there has been no precedence of something like this happening, there is not a single paragraph deciding it to be illegal. The following silence was broken by the Senate Speaker. Well, this has to be checked in detail. Our law advisor's preliminary report seems to confirm this. If that turns out to be true and humanity can't produce a counter-argument, the Senate has no choice to accept the Charlotte's request. Ambassador Mike, what does humanity have to say about this? Mike was stunned. You mean, right now, with no preparation time? Yes. Usually the claimed race has no possibility of arguing at all. But due to the circumstances, you do get exactly one chance right now. So speak now, or forever hold your silence. Mike was frantically searching for a possibility of solving this mess without humanity becoming what, in reality, amounted to a slave race. No matter how beneficial the law made it sound, he had found one, only one, and without the slightest ideas of his opponent's capabilities. It was the mother of all Hail Marys. Uh, to be an uplift patron requires the ability to uplift the race in question, correct? Mike gave no one the time to answer this rhetorical question, which in turn requires the patron to be technologically superior, correct? So if I can demonstrate that this superiority does not exist, this request has no legal ground to stay on, correct? This time, he waited for the answer. According to our law advisors, this logic chain is valid, answered the speaker. Now this is ridiculous. You humans are on the galactic stage for a few years. We have been here for a millennia. How can we not be superior? So sure, we accept this challenge. This is it. I'll either save or doom our human race within the next few minutes, thought Mike before he asked with completely false confidence. So let us start easy. What is your most advanced mode of energy generation? That would be a fusion technology, where two atoms, mostly hydrogen, would fuse together to a bigger atom, while releasing vast amounts of energy. A single reactor can easily supply the city, an entire continent it stands on. What about you, solar, fossil fuels, maybe even fission? The alien stared at Mike with a clear look of superiority. Uh, this might be easier than I thought. Well, um, we still have those in small amounts, as well as fusion, but nowadays most of our power comes from zero-point energy. We can build the units big enough to supply entire solar systems, but, but to, to match the output of one of your reactors, you'll need one about the same size as me. That definitely took off the care of the lock smug space. Well, he could only stammer out, That's impossible. I demand to end this facade on account of the human's blatant lies. The speaker intervened. Denied. 
The human is not lying. Just two months ago, my race ordered and received one of these units, and I can confirm his claims. Fine. You had one lucky invention, then. This means nothing yet. I doubt that you can match the speed of our spaceships. How fast this ship can reach about 200 light years per hour. Mike had to suppress a laugh. <laughs> uh, well, I I'm sorry to tell you this, but uh, the, the Renosian ambassador can confirm. Uh, we recently tested our new generation of warp drives in a war game. Uh, the fastest speed recorded was exactly 420.69 light years per hour. Oh, that's fun. What do you want to know next? Weapons! That's our specialty. Mere leaps and bounds ahead of you. Or do you want to claim that you can make a star go supernova? Well, uh, I can't tell you about our most powerful weapons, as they are classified. While completely true, Mike deliberately set this up as a trap, into which the alien immediately jumped. Ha! So you admit defeat? N not at all. Firstly, weaponry is only one of many fields of technology. Secondly, I am, however, allowed to talk about our most powerful non-classified weapon, which is basically a zero-point energy reactor rigged to explode, attached to a rocket engine. Our most destructive test cleared an entire solar system of every single atom. Imagine one day in the morning there is an entire system, a sun or two, five to fifteen planets and a few asteroid belts. And then, not even later in that day, you have a perfect vacuum for billions of miles around. Mike couldn't stop himself anymore. You know what? Stop me if you hear something you're better at. Computation, Matryoshka brains, civil engineering, space elevators, medicine. We can make ourselves biologically immortal. Geoengineering, ever transformed a dust ball into a life-sustaining planet. Nanotechnology. Do you guys even have nanotech? The alien did not move a single muscle in his body, except for those which lowered his jaw further and further, until it almost fell out of its joints. Well, uh, you got a big mouth, all right? But you simply can't back up any of it. I hereby ask for his request to be denied. After a short pause, the speaker answered, The request of Ambassador Locke is hereby officially denied. However, due to the obvious technological disparity, humanity may want to consider taking patronage over the Sharlock instead. End of story. Story number two. The Plague Wilders, written by Scrummy Bingus 3. Human is what the Plague Wilders referred to themselves as. In truth, they were pretty unremarkable, for coming from a Class 5 death world. They lacked the razor claws, bangs, or heavy armor plating, kindness, or otherwise. That was so common amongst death wilders, and their only remarkable feat was their ability to run until they either died or passed out which compared to unshakable and nine-penetrable shells of the Erkni, or the ridiculously quick and razor-sharp Hurin, they were nothing to write home about. The humans, after making themselves known to the wider galaxy, began to stretch out and figure out who was friend and who was foe. But a strange event would happen, where the worlds, colonies, and stations would suddenly start to go dark in the humans' wake. Studies were done, and accusations were levied on the humans. Accusations of purposefully creating and spreading a weaponized virus to eliminate all possible threats. A war started and ended before anyone realized it wasn't the humans purposely spreading the hyperplague, 
but it was their anatomy, and even their world itself. It turned out that while the multicellular life wasn't too much to talk about, the microorganisms were on a whole different level. Earth wasn't just a simple death world, it was a plague world, full of the most virulent and deadly bacteria and viruses to ever naturally occur. This shocked the greater galaxy and led to the humanity becoming a species of pariahs, who, despite being overly friendly, spread death on a level never before seen. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1712. Story number one. Why Humans Remain Ununited. Written by Cal Bynes. Most species in their cradle planet will generally be a mass of different factions, simply due to geography. As time goes on, they gradually come together into singular government by the time or when they become spacefaring. That was true for everyone. Whether it hive mind, electric, mammal, reptilian, it didn't really matter. The most practical solution was to unite as one. It just worked. Except for the humans. For some reason, humanity never did this. Eventually, one faction began ruling their own planet. But even that didn't matter to them. Even as exact same political or economic structure, if they lived on the same or differing types of planets, no matter what, there was never a single group that held authority over humanity. They warred and fought over land, held rebellions, made peace and trade agreements with each other, but never united. I, like the rest of the galaxy, was confused. Humans are such a capable species. Together they would be able to do so much good. Not just for themselves, but for others. It was when I published my first book on the subject, I ended up speaking with some humans. None of them answered the question, or agreed on why as humans usually do, but they helped me figure it out. Every human that I talked to or spoke about this would talk about the different politics, saying that this or that was the right way, how they wanted freedom, or that they knew how this or that should work. Some pointed at history and how this was done wrong, or this was what happens when one group or person is in control, usually ending up being about the Second World War. That's where I found the answers. I won't go over a detailed history of World War II, but it was one of their countries starting a war with the others in Europe, and slowly taking more and more land, as well as restricting a minority group within their country and those they took over, every country of the Allies, being immensely useful to eventually stopping the Axis forces. That's when I looked at the Allied countries, how they acted. That's when I noticed something that most researchers see as an inspiring tale of a hard-fought victory. It became what I think is the reason for humanity's diversiveness. The three main Allied forces were America, Britain, and the Soviet Union and each of them united in such odd ways. Two of them had a completely opposite political ideology to the other, later turning it into what they called a Cold War, which is a subject far out of my pay grade. One had warred with both of them, and previously even ruled over one of the countries. But they put these things aside, and worked as one, sacrificing so much from each country to help the others. Britain, suffering immense damage from bombings and holding a multitude of refugees from other countries and armies. Using new technology, skilled pilots, and every individual being ready to and able 
to build or hop into a bomb shelter at any time, a day or night. Through this, they held their small island for an incredible amount of time. The Soviets were forced to send legions of soldiers, later propaganda stating that their soldiers were meant to pick up the guns and ammo off the soldiers dying in the front of them. But the sentiment was the same. Legions of soldiers dying to hold their country's line because soldiers were all they had left with their air and mechanized parts of their army all but eliminated. Then America, who, while an ocean away, flipped their country upside down, their people going on rations, sons being drafted, meaning their once turning 17 to 18, being sent overseas to join the war. While only being bombed once, their entire country was turned into more or less a factory for the world. Every individual helping the war, whether it was growing food or making munitions. It's even said that radio stations would even tell the weather to avoid giving any information to the enemy. Humans are machines, not in necessarily their speed of making things, but in the never-ending endurance. Where a country being relentlessly bombed and trapped will still hold out against overwhelming odds, a country with nothing other than guns, bullets, and manpower between them and destruction, a people that, while not directly threatened, will sacrifice near all creature comforts and family to assist those who they haven't and won't ever meet. This endurance and willingness leads me to my second point. A tenant in most human governments that most scoff at due to its slow speed of action is a balancing of powers, the justification is to not allow any group or person to hurt the rest of the country with their own personal goals. This is partially due to how even self-admittedly easy humans are to convince sometimes. That is why I think humans are so divided. Because sometimes knowingly, sometimes not, humans are the biggest roadblocks to themselves. They fundamentally differ from any other species. Where we see a potential for greatness... Humans see the potential for horrors that they have or could do if under one banner, and instinctually try to avoid that path. Should they ever be united under one banner, I worry for what that spells for the galaxy at large, as either they will be our saviors, or the ones that remove any who oppose them from history, or even both of those at the same time. Delgard, inter-sapient researcher, when asked the human question. End of story. Story number two. Two species, one dream, written by a glass of whiskey. Two species and a dream, that the other one would cease to be. Long the two sides had fought until the humans arrived to say their thoughts. Stop bickering at once. Can't you see the pain you're causing each other? That is the point. The two replied in chorus, more alike than apart. But your brothers and sisters, can't you see? We can see a need for them to cease to be, each referring to the other, but in a chorus once again. Then we will make you see the way of peace by force. As humans were successful, far less fighting when they both prepared for a coming invasion, even some tentative attempts for a temporary stopping of stabbing each other were made, until they realized that the humans were nowhere to be found. They had been fooled. Horrified by what they had done, unable to stop themselves. After all, they had just proven that it was possible for them to stop fighting for five bloody minutes. At least, if there was a promise of far greater amounts of blood to come later. 
They tried some half-hearted attempts at invading each other, as in olden times, but it just wasn't the same. In the end, they determined that it was the human's fault, for being so sneaky. Now, they hadn't technically been attacked, which presented somewhat of a conundrum. How to justify it? In the end, the old saying, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words are just the worst, came to the rescue. With it, they could clearly show that the humans were just the worst, as they had hurt none of their bones and used words. Some even speculated that they didn't even have sticks and stones. They were quickly relegated to a mental institution, specializing in treating massive illusions concerning sticky things. Next problem was that the humans were awfully far away. Some suggestions of simply moving all planets were tempting. Would certainly shorten the supply lines, but in the end, they decided on something far more terrifying, more despicable, more nefarious than they had ever done to each other. They decided to use their words. Training camps were set up to train troops in this new mode of combat. After many months, they were ready. Connecting to the humans' internet, they would start their worldly invasion. You're all just big poo heads, and you smell like it. Forward with their best insults at hand, they decided on a suitable target, 4chan. They didn't know precisely who this 4chan were, but all mentioning of him seemed to be in the negative light. Clearly, a suitable target to test their combat divisions on. Five divisions made their attack by sunset. Only one remained. It was a dark, wordy day for both of their people. Too sure of themselves that they had launched a large-scale attack on the very first day. Only now, with so many troops strapped onto metal beds, were their mistakes made clear. They tried to contact the 4chan to surrender, but received even more attacks in return. Unable to bear the onslaught, all communications with the humans were ended, but not before all humans' attacks had been saved and categorized. A new dawn had broke, and a new type of conflict between them emerged with words, and some minor stabbing for tradition. Sticks and stones might break my bones, but words cause psychological damage that will never heal. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1713 Story number one. To decorate your starship. Written by Eddie Eddie. So you've bought your first starship and you've got some credits left over. Now you want to have your ship. Look the same as everyone else's. Not to mention, if it's a bigger ship, then you're going to need some personal touches. And a bed. Now everyone knows that each race's ships are known for. Some species for speed, others for comfort and size. Humans, if you want a ship that keeps going. The Mahakt, if you want a bio ship. But how do you know who to go to and when you want to get your ship painted and touched up? Well, that's what this is for. A guide on where to go when you want to get your ship decorated. So that you can do it yourself, but nothing says newbie at a spaceport more than a home-done paint job. Before we start, let's go over a few basic categories that we'll be skipping. If you've got a bioship, that's way out of the league of this post. So, let's not go into how to recolor your bioship. And the second one we'll be skipping is the fully aquatic species, because they need special consideration. If you need the case of those categories, you can find my guide to decorating for irregular spaces here. Now, on to the fun part. First, let's go over the middle of the road options. This is your widest bracket and tends to cover most crit sticks. From just under a thousand crits to almost ten thousand. 
If you are looking to have a vessel tricked out with exploration and research, you need to swing by one of the Jolner outposts. These guys make the best research kits in the galaxy. Just be ready to fill out all the paperwork. If you want something that's more natural and less clean-cut, the Arkborek sends to make some fantastic synthetic plants that'll bond with your ship and turn it into its very own biodome. Supposedly, they even have small animals for the bigger ships. I can't wait to review those next time I'm in their space. Watch this space for a review. If you're after a comfort and opulence, however, the Emirates of the Hakan will make your ship look like it costs several times its original price. Just don't expect to be on the lower end of the price range here. I mean, sandworm silk is expensive. I still have my mess hall table in a dust of wood from when I had them redo my ship. If opulence isn't your speed, but still want to comfort, then I'd suggest taking local to yourself. You may have more chance of getting ripped off, but your own species know what you want best, right? Though the other option is to go see the Yisrael. Plenty of comfortable chairs that don't look right out of a noble house. If you want utilitarian, you'll need to go see the Titans of Ul. They tend to make things super sparse and logical. Just don't expect comfortable chairs. My last suggestion for this section is to go see the Shcha. Kingdoms, if you are a psionic race, they make fantastic decor that can tap into your mood and will let you turn the coffee maker on from anywhere in the ship. A massive boon, personal experience tells me that. Now, onto one race that needs its own section. Humans! Gee, humans don't have a style that they can really bring, except for the fact that they have every style available to them. If you're looking to keep things as low-priced as possible, then you've got to go human. But at the same time, if you've got more than enough cash to sling around a custom-done human interior and paint job, will outshine any other species. Let's start with the low end. Humans have these things called flat packs. You know how when you get a ship decorated and fitted, everything is all ready to go? These don't. They come in really flat boxes with instructions to assemble. The instructions are impossible to read. Galnet will have some videos. So you can make everything just the way you want. Just remember once it is assembled, it is pretty hard to move. So make sure that it is in the right room. As for low-price paint jobs, they don't come in a lot of colors, but it's better than just having an unpainted ship, right? That's like going to a Formian dance without a mask. <laughs> Most people won't even be able to tell the difference between a standard fitting and the human flatback fitting, so long as you don't mess up the assembly. As for the high-end, if you've got enough cash, humans can do... Anything. You want your ship to look like something from an ancient history? Done. A ship that looks like something out of a storybook? Easy. What about something really hard, like replicating the bathing pools of Zobat? If you have the cash, the humans can make them better. I'm not kidding. I got a human-done kitchen last time I was in their end of the galaxy, and I've never been happier. Everything is exquisite and is just as I want it. They even installed a heroic fire cylinder on a spaceship safely. So if you have the cash, go human and expect it to take a while because boy, do humans love to make sure everything is just perfect. 
I mean, it took them three tries to get the cylinder to sit and spin right, but they insisted that since I asked for it when it was going to happen, no matter how many times they had to replace the kitchen wall. And there you have it, a guide on how to decorate your starship. Just make sure that you're comfy and you're going to enjoy your stay. Before you go traipsing across the universe. End of story. Story number two. Objection. Written by Echoing Cascade. The station alarms were blaring. They screamed. Pirates and the promenade. May remain in your room, sir. All is under control. And the noises he could hear outside were any indication. The security team was having problems with that all-under-control part, thought Greg. He was having problems of his own. Should I go with the longsword or the wakizashi? Greg was looking over his weapons, and when he got an answer, he knelt down to look under his bed, where his roommate was hiding and crying. Any ideas? His roommate, an insectoid alien, he really ought to get around to ask his name of his race. Simply sobbed louder. Greg strongly nodded in agreement. You're right. Short spear and buckler it is. Weapons in hand, and a smile on his face, he opened the door. Director Nerek had finally got into an agreement with the lead pirate. Their incursion on this commercial hub was routine and mostly for show. There were pirates most of the time, but killed no more than needed, and in the case of military force ever attacked the station, the wolves became shepherd dogs. Director Nerek liked that allegory. He had learned it from the human traveler. His musings on today's incursion were cut short, as was the lead pirate by a thrown sphere that embedded itself to the shaft into the station wall. Greg calmly walked past the director and pulled the spear from the wall with some effort. Kill a dozen on my way here. No need to thank me. Nerik could have choked him with his bare manipulators if the neck of a death boulder wasn't stronger than his grip. You dump ass! Have you no idea what you have done? Security! Arrest him! I think you mean dumbass, and also, wait, what the hell? Greg had been sitting in his cell for hours now, not exactly certain what his crime was when his legal counsel arrived. She was a human, six feet tall, short red hair, with a wicked scar that ran from the corner of her left eye to the middle of her cheek. She was wearing a well-tailored business suit and carried a large briefcase. So, um, you're my lawyer. The woman gave a curt nod and spoke with the translator called a vague Russian accent. Yes, I'm Alyona Petrova. I will represent you and your murder charges. Greg was confused, not so much on the charges, but the woman in front of him. You sure you're not a marine or a ranger? Alyona gave a small grin at the question. No, not a marine. Not for a while now. Alyona led Greg into a large room, a bit too large now that he looked closely, where the proceedings would take place. When he looked to the accusing lawyer, he almost had a heart attack. By the hell is there a straighty warrior of all things the station lawyer? Before he could get his thoughts in order, litigation began. Alyona explained how the situation was perceived by Greg, how he did what he believed to be right, and how he was innocent under these circumstances. The straighty warrior was less eloquent. He banged his fist so hard against the table that it split in two grabbed an axe from his oversized briefcase and spoke a single sentence. Trial by combat! Alyona smiled from ear to ear and opened her own briefcase. Greg looked inside and saw a katana and its sheath, and the words, irrefutable evidence, were engraved in Russian on the blade. 
The battle had been swift, brutal, and an overwhelming victory for Alyona. She and Greg were walking back to his room to gather his things and leave the station. She was now wearing her business jacket as a cloak over her shoulders and carried her sheathed blade in one hand. She was also covered in straily blood. You seem confused, just completely and utterly, yes. Alyona laughed. You see, many species have achieved FTL. Many, many species, and not all of them share the same values, and naturally, this extends to their laws. As such, what is perfectly normal in some is a crime worthy of death to others. Greg was starting to get the picture. Greg, wait. So trial by combat is... Alyona nodded. Correct. It is ununiversally accepted throughout known space to resolve interspecies legal issues. As Greg bid his lawyer goodbye and made his bags, he vowed two things. One to never go on a killing spree unless asked to, and two, to never get on the bad side of an interspecies lawyer. Or any lawyer, for that matter. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1714. Story number one. The Xenovet, written by Yama Galathan. The humans are, well, uncanny. We joined the Galactic Federation around the same time as them, meager, three years prior. When I first saw one of them, I got a weird sort of whiplash. You know this feeling when your mind goes, yeah, nope, bye. He was tall, at least a head taller than me, two hands, two legs, two eyes, nice eyes, with a pretty shade of brown, short hair that was naturally a splendid dark gold, broad arms and somewhat visible muscles on them. He looked like one of us. Not quite, though. I'm considered tall by the standard of my species, tall and bulky, Nonetheless, he was even bigger. His hair and eyes were absolutely stunning, even for me, and I'm not even into men. And don't get me started on the way he stood or glanced around. It was so familiar yet, so wrong. Maybe not wrong, just creepy. Yeah, he was absolutely creepy and absolutely attractive. But I decided to leave that to the female part of the crew. His name was also uncannily familiar. Frederick. For God's sake, the father of my father was named Illidoric. Something was on. For a moment, I even considered the thought of our species being one, just split in half by some cataclysm or war long ago. But then I remembered. We were from literally six galaxies apart. No way an ancient civilization could traverse this space, not without wormholes. It was just a cruel twist of evolution. It did not stop being creepy. Frederick was our new crew member, a healer, or as he called himself, a Xenovet, whatever that means. I observed him closely for the next few cycles and still couldn't shake that feeling of wrongness. It only got worse when he somewhat started to, I don't know, mimic our facial expressions. His were fine and similar enough to ours when he started his voyage, so there was no need to assimilate them more. We understood a freakish amount, uh a lot about his body language already. Still, he started to wrinkle his nose when uncomfortable instead of huffing. His gestures got sharper and more concrete. Heck, he sometimes didn't call us any more vocally and just clapped as every other of us. No other crew member or race different than ours adapted so quickly and thoroughly. A lot did not adapt at all. Of course, there were some bumps in the road. As when someone, uh, it was me, I'm dumb, I know, took his stifled laugh as crying, or when he in turn mistook my display of protectiveness over food as being in pain. 
Owen Joel said to his face that he was the sexiest goddamn being she'd ever saw. Uh, anyways, he got along with us brilliantly. After some time, maybe it was a season, I kind of uh, stopped seeing the differences. I think you could ask me then, what species is he? And I would respond with a firm and thoughtless Saphexian, as me and half the crew. I remembered that he was human only when he accidentally cut himself with a knife. The sincerely small gash on his hand was bleeding a really inadequate amount. And this was the day I discovered that humans, these fecking mimics, had red blood. Not the polite blue of half the galaxy, not the acid green, the sluly, not even the Saphaxian goldish pinkish hue. Red, red like the banners the Federation. And red blood is a really creepy sight, I tell you. But well, this only cemented my theory about cruel evolution. My hopes about seducing a human female got suddenly a bit more bleary. Frederick, in turn, was not unsettled, even a bit, when another Saphexian crewmate, I think it was Dex, went to him with a bloody gash on his forehead, made by a flying piece of an old accumulator that exploded. The title of Xenovet Healer apparently requires a lot of knowledge about anatomy of everybody. Luckily for me, he did not seem upset when he caught me staring at his already half-healed cut. Even better, he explained to me what had happened and how does his circulatory system work. He is the epitome of being chill and feeling good in my body. Absolutely shameless. Not that our doll will tell him anything. But walking down the corridor, only in boxes, to go get a salve in the infirmary, even one more time, get him assaulted by the female part of the crew. Or Bob will die in his own blood. Poor guy. He's a ginormous crush. I'm not joking. But, well, maybe he's chiller than the peak of Mount Justeri in winter season. But I am not. So it was me that nearly died of Mitch when my mother video called me. He was at the infirmary at the time, dropping off some pieces of prosthetic, and Frederick was behind me, stirring some of his favorite drink of his, a foul-smelling dark liquid called coffee. Mom, dearest, I know that you love me, but the next time maybe don't call a friend of mine as Sexy Orc when you see him in the first time. I was never in my whole life more embarrassed. Frederick only stood here dumbfounded for a moment and then started laughing uncontrollably and sputtering some nonsense about Lord of the Rings, Sauron, Masterplan, and the damned FF. I quickly and silently left the room, first time seeing the infamous human aesthetic fit with my own eyes. It was not known to the Federation, but we also had familiar fits, although never about something so random and, well, insulting. Calling someone an orc was like calling someone a dumb slut. Only worse, and well, I've never before or after heard it paired with the word sexy. Mom, to borrow a human phrase, what the feck? Anyways, I like our human. If the rest of them is even a bit like him, I see a bright and peaceful future before our races. And a freaky amount of warny Sasfaxians. But well, you take what you can get. P.S. Um, I asked Frederick, apparently, Saphaxians are attractive by human standards. He just has already a life partner on his home planet. They call us space elves, whatever that means. So, maybe I can get a shot with someone. Yes! But, uh, that does mean there will be a lot of horny humans, too. <sighs> this can complicate things on a large scale. Not my problem, though. End 
of story. Story number two. The Xenovet Pets. Written by Fiamma Golathan. I've seen a lot while dealing with our human. Redrick was a force to be reckoned with, even if he is a healer. Or maybe because of that. In retrospective, it wasn't strange, not at all. But when a pirate was holding me at gunpoint, my paralyzed crewmates lying around, motionless, and he, of all people, just, uh, just straight up tore the attacker apart. I was scared, crapless. Logically, my mind knew he must have known that the terracula was somewhat soft under the exoskeletons. He was a cross-species healer. These things are common knowledge, especially in these circles. But my fight-or-flight part saw an unarmed, bloody, and snarling human that grabbed the pirate and squeezed until all of his organs pulled around its feet. And his eyes, oh for God's sake, his brown, normally so warm and calming eyes, I could have sworn that they were glowing with something that screamed a millennia of war and bloodshed. Half of the crew started avoiding him after that, not alienating, but avoiding especially when he seemed upset. The other half, well, apparently there was a betting pool whose romantic novel will get published first. Gross, uh, if understandable. Another thing happened when we had a short shore leave on a rather wet planet. There was only water in sight around the landing platform. Suffixians don't exactly hate water. It's just more of an inbuilt warning to not go swimming. As on our home planet, there is a myriad of things that want to kill us in any body bigger than a puddle. I, for example, can't swim, as for a majority of our crew. Turns out humans are, um, uh, Frederick insisted we go to the beach nearby. Well, as much of a beach as it was. More like a concrete slide descending into the water. I agreed, as sunbathing in something I enjoyed and the water seemed shallow and clear enough to see any eventual predators. I even took my blaster in case something decided to crawl out of it anyway. Most of all, I hadn't considered that Frederick would also wear only underwear. My bad, I felt uh, inadequate. Like, uh, he's got abs uh, and chest hair. And me, even with my somewhat physically taxing work, I still look like a twig in comparison. Fortunately, the girls haven't caught the sight of us. Second of all, he came here not to sunbathe. He came here to swim. And I nearly died of an aneurysm when this idiot jumped straight into the water and emerged only a minute later. And he was laughing. Because, apparently, even if humans are not aquatic species and don't have fins, they still love swimming. And Frederick took to the water like a Nyessa. The fact did not help me calm down, but it gave even more fuel to the already raging wildfire of our crew's hardcore romance writers. I'm starting to regret telling our roommates about this trip. Anyways, did you know that humans are pretty flexible? And I don't mean physically. Suffixians are much more bendable, but mentally. It appears that nothing can break this weirdly wired brain of his. A species with eight different systems of determining the year at home we had worse. A patient is apparently poisoned by air. Sometimes happened, bud. We get stranded on a wild and dangerous planet for a week. Well, thanks to mom, I was in the scuts. We will survive. This place seems quieter than the woods behind my home. I'm starting to ask myself if this is their species quirk. 
Horryforth is so different. After a while, we started noticing his growing homesickness. Everybody agreed it couldn't be. We needed to do something I, being the closest one to him, suggested that maybe we could give him an earthly pet, as he seemed to love animals. We did some digging in the galaxy net and decided to buy him a so-called cat. These earthly felines seemed to be the easiest to accommodate, and they were relatively small, so we did. The seller seemed pretty suspicious, but hey, who am I to judge? It was a youngling with completely black fur and yellow eyes. It looked cute. Until we gave it to Frederick, and his eyes went impossibly wide. This, this wasn't a cat, or not a domestic cat at least. It was apparently a panther cub. We decided to keep it anyway, as a ship bodyguard, although the shop where we bought it got immediately reported. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1715. Sodded, Hire the Terrans, written by Sawendro. If you are interested in the story, the original is linked in the description. Welcome to Crew Matches. I am your chatbot, Chatty. You have selected Hi Zelvian as your interface language. If this is correct, please state continue. If it is not, please state your preferred interface language now. Drahama shuddered reflexively. Chatbots in Galactic Stand were always too, uh, bright, cheerful, too open, too fake-friendly. She ran a claw through her quills to settle them. Continue. The screen flickered as it refreshed, and rounded letters of G-Stand replaced with the comforting angular glyphs of a native Zalvian. Thank you for your selection, honored customer, as we would like to ensure the best possible match for your crewing requirements. We beseech you to provide us answers to a few short questions. May we have some small measure of your time? Better, much better. The little avatar on the screen even replicated the right body motions to convey respect. It was all still fake, of course, as the VI wasn't actually alive. But, as the saying went, the intent of the actor, not the final result, is what was most important. While the VI was irksome, Drahama couldn't fault the programmer for wanting to try. You may continue. For brevity, I ask that the formalities be dropped. Please address me as merchant addresses a merchant. Understood, valued customer. Firstly, is an AI acceptable for your crew role? Negative. This ship does not have the processing substrate required. A virtual intelligence would not be suitable either. I hear and understand. What crew role or roles are you looking to fill? I need an R3 or above rated engineer. Preferably experienced with slip drives manufactured by Squalian Other Space. I additionally need a galley hand, a navigation officer, and 30 laborer technicians. I hear and understand. Kindly tell me about the onboard working conditions so that I may filter my list of candidates. Very well. This ship as a whole runs with a gaseous nitrogen-oxygen atmosphere with roughly 80-20 split. Temperature varies by section and module, depending on cargo. In general, the temperatures can vary from 274 to 320. Forgive the interruption, if you please. May I please ask which temperature scale you are defining this? By the burrows of color, Brahama's quills, which had been slowly rising up as her frustration grew, suddenly raised to the full defensive posture. 
Talking to a VI was actually somehow infinitely more frustrating than talking to a living being. Even talking to a reggae, when their flowery, overwrought prose was more tolerable. This time, the Zalvian didn't bother to settle her quills. She was alone in the captain's quarters, and it wasn't like the VI would care after all. All measurements are in galactic standard, the ones those Terrans call the System Interstellar. Thank you, valued customer. Please, may I ask you to continue to list your vessel later? Drahama grumbled. Why couldn't the damned VI just read the data of the ship's database? Oh yes, the Data Security Act. Yet another of the Ploth's inane Joint Bureau of Data Transmission and Communication Wavelengths decrees. Honestly, trading in Ploth's space became less and less pleasant every time. She was getting to the point where she would rather pull out her ear cools than have to sit through another update breathing. No, thank you. She replied sarcastically. Temperature range from 270 to 320. Pressures from 80,000 to 150,000. The engineer can set temperature and pressure as they please. The galley is set to 300 temperature units and the pressure of 100,000. Technicians will be provided with appropriate gear to work across the full range. Please, dear customer. Is the entire vessel gas-filled? Yes. So no aquatics. Uh, may I inquire as to the humidity? Standard low. Species needing humid air must provide own respirator gear. Gravity is set to 0.7, but may be adjusted for cargo. Mag boots are standard in ship's uniforms and exo-assists are available. Thank you for your information, honored customer. If it pleases you, please review the records of our available crew. They are represented in recommended order. If you require further filtering, please, but ask. About time. Oh, filter out any species that can only tolerate dextra amino foods and any that lack a sense of sight. The list was still some thousands long, and the reclaimer war had left thousands disposed in the fate of space-qualified individuals. Using the expression Anthony had once taught her, it was a sad but true fact that a lot of people desperately in need of employment by the Zalvian merchant fleet were simply not cut out for it. It was going to take hours to pick out candidates and read their psyche vowels. Later, with quills oiled and scented, Drahama lazed in her nest in her crew harem to discuss the potential new hires. They had already been talking and arguing for hours, with the exiting males being the most outspoken. The females, not to be outdone, had been the loudest, however. I don't think that we can have a plothes. They smell awful. That's discrimination. That's true. No one but the plothes can stand the smell. We have this amazing technology called deodorant. Its use is mandated, much as you seem to forget. Still, though, but Mirtha's spiky beard. Look at this one. Hey, open. Really? Yeah, hang on. A hologram of a massive four-armed open floated to the center of the room. The quills of all the gathered Zalvians rustled in appreciation of the musculature on display. Very impressive specimen. What position are you thinking? All of them. Accompanied by a quill wave of crest to hoof, it was clear that this one of Drahama's harem was entertaining some thoughts that would definitely draw the ire of Interstellar Department of Sentient Resources. A wave of answering, amusement and mocking disgust quill displays rippled around the nest. I don't agree, but what qualifications does? Drama checked the biodata. She possess. Oh, none. They're only qualified for intrasystem work, but... No, uh, but nothing. Quill head, still thinking with your genitals. 
But thinking with my genitals is how we made the sick I'm sitting on, oh captain. True, but also disgusting. Another harem member, a female, chimed in. I have a Rithi with an R2 level in slip drives. No experience on our type, but it is best qualification to pay ratio I've seen. Are we speaking suspiciously cheap? Maybe. I'll send it to you now. They continued for hours, with candidates rejected, shortlisted, scrutinized, and put on the final list. The following ship daybreak, after morning mating, the final ten candidates for officers' positions were reviewed. So the Zalvium Deshem is our best candidate for navigation. Drahama asked her first mate. Yes, Captain. Forty-five long-haul flights with no navigational errors. Commanded Osmium Starburst for war heroism and psych reports that fit in well with the harem. Requests standard scale three pay. Accepted. Now what about Gallyhand? Still undecided, Captain. And labor technicians about that. The quills in the first mate's crest parted slightly, betraying her anxiety about what she was to say. Not with it. Well, uh, I know that the Anthony incident might be a bit fresh, but we thought that some Terrans might be the best. I see. And why, my beloved, are you anxious to say so? The first mate, Barilla, smoothed out the quills that had betrayed her. Well, um, you see. Yeah, first mate, out with it. Because of how Anthony left the ship, we thought that increasing the number of Terrans might not be a good idea. I mean, they make up nearly 40% of the crew already, which is almost the same as the number of Zelvians, and if more Terrans and Zelvians fall into that kind of misunderstanding, then it might disrupt the harems and damage the pact bonding between the humans and the kin on board, as well as create a tense atmosphere for the other crew species and... Stop and breathe. Relax. Let's smooth your quills, my love. You've got them all worked up. Drahama lovingly and gently helped her first mate set her quills back in place, then continued brushing Barilla's down to keep her calm and relaxed. Barilla was a great XO, calm and composed in a crisis, equal parts stern and caring to those under command, as well as wonderful mother to the hatchlings they shared. Her one Achilles heel was her aversion to embarrassing personal moments, what happened with Anthony was uh, unfortunate, said Drahama. An understandable but regrettable result of differences in culture, species, and norms. With the guidebooks for both Terran Federation and Zalvian Parliament updated, I don't think we need to worry too much about the incident being repeated. But my love, Barella Shush, I'm not embarrassed or ashamed, well, not excessively so, about what happened. I thought Anthony was intimating he wanted to be a part of the harem, I thought it would be interesting for us to invite him in. Everything after that was, uh, or was it, uh, a comedy of errors? Errors, a comedy of errors. Are you sure? I thought it was errors, as in a comedy for the ages. Errors, as in a comedy caused by mistakes and misunderstandings. Well, anyway, it was a mishap, and it was for the best that he left. But I don't think either of us should feel ashamed. I bet he'll think twice before addressing a Zelvian captain as my gorgeous porcupine centaur again, though. The pair laughed, and a giggle and a clatter of quills ran through the harem members who'd gathered around when they'd heard the topic being broached. My harem, my officers, have you realized how much the Terrans have affected us? We've adopted parts of their speech and thinking, their fearlessness, to an extent, their boldness. I think having Terrans aboard has been a boon to us all on a cultural level and an economic one, 
with the way they work. Damn straight. They work hard and play hard and get her done all over the distant can. Choked the Dirima. The communications officer. Stop taking the piss with it, replied Drahama. But considering the work we do and the cargo we haul, I want them. They can tolerate the full range of temperatures and pressures we license to run at with no gear. Better than the Rithi. They're stronger and faster in ship standard gravity than anyone except for the Obun. They're tough. Heal almost as quickly as we do because of their metal ability to scar up. And they've got almost as much endurance as me in a mating rut. Another clatter of amusement rolled around the bridge. They packed bond in themselves like a harem and with other groups almost as strongly. They got what mental resilience for the long haul and they make all of us happier. And their petitions really know how to get to even me looking my best. You're still as beautiful as when I met you. Purred Barella from inside Drahama's arms. The first mate's quills were quivering slightly. They sighed. I know it's still mating season, so please remember to take your suppressants after morning mating. Clear heads on shift, please. And a double dose for you, Barella. Barella headed over to the bridge drink dispenser, and Julie took a second dose of medicine, her call settling once more as it took effect. Drahama continued, Anyway, as I was saying, Terrans are okay with me, and I promise not to try and mate with one again, or at least uh, not for a while. Another clatter. You know what? Sod it. Get a human galley hand as well. Just, you know, not a British or American subspecies one. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1716 Story number one. Humans are peaceful. Written by Wegian Warrior. Cacaldo took a deep breath. The human trader was slowly walking down the street, greeting other sentients left and right, even when the imposing biped towered over them. Feeling his heart's racing, Cagaldo stepped out from his little shop. Hello, trader. I wonder if I can oppose on your time. The human paused, bright eyes behind a pair of slightly opaque lenses, took the young Lilfit in briefly, before the lower half of the human face opened in a wide smile. Cacaldo stared at shudder, then relaxed. The smile, he recalled, was a sign of human happiness. Young Cacaldo, isn't it? Dealer in uh, used electronics and information. Mostly information, yes. What can I do for you today? Cacaldo looked up, trying to make his mouth mimic the human expression. He was sure he had talked to this human before, yet his name was not known. Part of the mystery he hoped to unravel. Hello, trader. I seek understanding. Call me Josh, Kakal. Can I call you Kakal? Walk with me around the market and we'll talk. Part of Kakaldo's mind wanted to say no. His name was part of him, but... But the human seemed so genuine, so friendly. Clearly no insult was meant. Kakaldo turned and quickly locked up his little shop, then hurried up to the human's side. The human started walking again at an easy, slow pace. Fellow uh, friend Josh, I am trying to understand why humans can travel so easily, how humans are welcomed everywhere, how you can trade with all sides in a conflict. The human looked at him, the soft skin around the corner of the human's eyes crinkling slightly, as the human made an odd ha-ha sound. Kakal, you know the answer. Humans are welcome everywhere because humans are friends with everyone. 
We've never started any wars, never had to haggle over prices, never delivered less than promise. We are, in short, peaceful. And yet, you are death wolves and carnivores. What is known of human pre-FTL history is dominated by strife. Humanity breaks the mold, fellow tre friend Josh. The humans seemed to consider what Cacaldo had said, as a path seemed to open in front of them in the busy street. It's no secret that... The human was interrupted by a Lug's youngling, darting after a ball in front of them, chuckling. The human caught the child and raised it in the air, tossing it up slightly and catching it gently again. Careful there, young Sok. Yes, Sok, offspring of Kanal. Running into the street can be dangerous. The human lowered the youngling onto the street again. Your broodmother probably worries over you, Sok. You should go home. One day you'll be a mighty warrior, but today is not that day. The young Lugs stared up at the human, mouths agape, then turned and scurried away, disappearing in the throng. Ah, kids, as I was saying, Kakal, there is no secret that humanity has a checkered past. But can we not improve? Must we always be monsters? Kakal Gedo considered what the human had said in silence, as their pair slowly walked through the business district. Friend Josh, how come you knew the youngling's name? Knowing the names of the traders, I can understand, but... The human smiled and gingerly tapped the side lenses, covering his eyes. Some free information for you to trade, Kakal. Human smart glass are tied to the hyperweb, because it is useful to know the names of new friends, the wares a city needs, the social mores of friendly species, or what a fellow trader can offer. Kakal Gedda found his head dipping forward, mimicking the human body for language for agreement. So you found the information on the hyperwed. But, friend Kakal, a youngling, listens when a stranger knows his name, just like a trader listens when a stranger offers a good deal. Kakal Gadol thought hard for a heartbeat. It are the deals, are it not? You're welcome everywhere, because humans always offer good deals. Humans never ask for more than you can afford, Kakal. Most of the time, you can't afford not to take up a human offer. The human paused for a second, accepting a gift of fruit from a vendor in one of the many small stalls. Humanity offers friendship and the opportunity to prosper to everyone, friend Kakal, and luckily for humanity, most other races are eager to accept. Kakal Gedo walked in silence as the human ate the fruit, other vendors casting sidelong glances at the one who had offered the gift. Friend Kakal... It is in everyone's interest to be welcoming to humans. It is in everyone's interest to trade with us. It is in everyone's interest to keep the peace. The human stopped and smiled at Kakal Gudo again, looking around. Kakal Gudo realized that they had come back to his little shop. Kakal Gudo, remember when I said humans never started a war? That we never haggle? That we never deliver less than promise? Yes, and it is true, but... Kakal Gudo, humans like being peaceful. So we end wars without the negotiations about terms and conditions. And when we end wars, we always deliver a final end to hostilities. Do you understand? Kakal Gago thought hard, then mimicked the human nod, then shrank slightly as he turned to unlock his little shop again. The human peered into the semi-darkness of the little business. Nice little shop you got there, friend Kakal. Would be a real shame 
if something were to happen to it. End of story. Story number two. Human Hands, written by Numerous Sun 4282. Lamia watched the human work with the greatest interest. She had never seen a human interfacing with a computer before. On this ship, a dozen different sapient species had need of the computers for a million different tasks a billion times a day. And yet this was the first time she'd seen a human do it. It wasn't the way Lamia was used to doing it. She'd wrap her shorter and more dexterous tentacle around the input sphere and it would measure the positions of her tentacles and interpret that into computer functions like scrolling, text, clicking, what have you. It was simple. It was natural. It felt as if she were writing with her tentacles on a physical notepad. The human did not use the spheres. It used a board with a small, oblong half-dome to navigate the system and enter information. At first, Lemire thought poorly of the process. Watching the human's hand pass from the board to the half-dome, wiggled a bit, then passed back to the board. But as she watched, she became mesmerized by the process. The humans didn't have tentacles like the Mia's people. They had hands, and each hand ended in five little pseudo-tentacles called fingers. This was the part that fascinated Lemia. She'd watch as the fingers, rigid and relatively inflexible, would scatter across the ball like an insect's legs, leaving a little clickety-clack sound in their wake. The human could input data about as fast as anyone thanks to these speedy fingers, and they used them for so much more than computer manipulation. Lemia spent the better part of her week following the human around the ship, observing their use of their hands. The human hands were very gentle. They picked up soft, swishy foods without bursting them, and could pluck items out from crowded areas without disturbing the surroundings. Lemia watched the human pull sharp pieces of hardware, nails, they were called, from a box without inflicting damage to their hands, the fingers would gently enter the box, pinch a nail, sometimes a couple nails, and withdraw them. No more force than was necessary to hold them. That incident had also revealed to Lemia that human hands were a sort of sensory organ as well. The human hadn't even looked at the box, but was able to grab a nail with ease. They would touch things all the time without seeing them. Their favorite seemed to be their furry companion, whom they'd stroke absentmindedly as an ancient grooming practice. In the morning, Lemire witnessed a human flail their arms about, their handing slapping at their desks in search of an alarm while their eyes remained closed. Almost every time, the hand found the source of the alarm and was even able to manipulate the buttons on it, without the human ever rising or even looking at the object. They could even detect temperatures as well. As the human explained, when Lemire caught them rapidly tapping a hot cooking surface, they could check if something was too hot, or perhaps too cold, by touching it lightly. Perhaps not as accurate as the Vrishranki's heat-based vision, but not bad all the same. More than just dexterous tools, though, human hands were weapons. Lemire was riveted by a conflict between two humans one day, the human clenched their hands, turning them into solid slabs of skin and bone that they hurled at each other. The impacts were fierce and tightly packed bones in hands delivered the force of the blow in localized and devastating hits. Even in fighting, the human hands were great at manipulating. 
One human opened their hand, catching the fist in their palm and closing their fingers around it. They pulled the hand offline and in, trapping the first human's entire arm and making the conflict grapple rather than a strike. The human hands clenched at everything they could touch. Clothes were grabbed, hair was pulled, faces were even pushed and turned by sturdy fingers. When the fight was broken up, it was by two more humans who came in and used their hands to restrain the arms of the first two and began to pull them apart. While they may not have been as flexible and malleable as Lemire's tentacles, human hands truly were a marvel of evolution in their own way. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1717. Humans Fight with Honor, written by Scooby Wagon. Sector Commander Gorand was not a happy Sector Commander. He was supposed to be overseeing all Karali military operations in the Sector, and, for the most part, it was going reasonably well. The trouble had started three centons ago, when Central Command had decided that they wanted to annex the Third Planet in the GC-417-835 system. The intelligence section had indicated at the time that it was a colony planet held by the Seren. It should have been easy, but here they were, three centons into it, and the planet was still not under Corali control. Central Command was not happy about this lack of progress, so Gorad was now reviewing operations with his intelligence and operations chiefs. Let's review, shall we? Gorad said, fixing the intelligence chief with a pointed stare. Three centons ago, you said that this planet, he pointed to the planet in question on the sector display, was a colony planet held by the Seron. Gorad flipped through the data pad on the original intelligence estimate. You also said that there would be approximately 1,200 to 2,000 Seron citizens on the planet, probably from the agrarian caste. The intelligence chief met the commander's gaze and said, Yes, commander. At the time, that was the official estimate for the Central Command's intelligence section. There was no mention at the time of these. The intelligence chief flipped through his own datapad, checking the term humans. The original intelligence estimate was based on semi-orbital passes from three automated probes. The most recent pass was nine centons ago. The pass prior to that was 11 centons ago, and the one prior to that was 13 centons ago. Imagery from all three passes should show current area of operations. There is no indication of a human presence, or any other aside from the Seron settlement anywhere. Obviously, the humans arrived, settled and deployed all the structures we can observe in nine centons or less. Fine, Gorat said. What do we know about these humans? Commander, all we know about them is what we have observed here. They are bipedal, hairless species, likely of a simian evolutionary path. They're obviously spacefaring with interstellar and colonization capabilities. And that implies FTL capabilities and all the other technologies that tend to go along with it, such as energy shields, directed energy weapons, and artificial gravity. Obviously, their biology is compatible with the environment, but that isn't saying much since it is a pretty benign planet. We believe that, like the Seron, these humans have a caste-based society. However, it seems that their caste system may be less rigid than most, since we have observed agrarian caste humans performing work in what is clearly the merchant caste establishment. 
It is possible that this is some sort of indentured servitude, but we don't think so because we do not observe any of the other social artifacts that tend to go along with indentured service as a social norm. As they appear to be on a simian evolutionary path, we expect fairly high strength and general physical toughness at an individual level. Typically, we would expect an evolutionary path that favors strength and toughness to sacrifice intelligence. However, their technology indicates otherwise. They were able to deploy a complete village in less than nine centons, something that we could not do. They obviously have the means of communication that we cannot detect. The weapons we have seen so far are all slug throwers with chemical propellant. We assume that they reserve better weapons for their military cast. That said, their slug throwers are absolutely effective. Finally, Commander, we know that the humans appear to have a customary or standard challenge. On several occasions, a human has challenged our forces to battle with the phrase, and I'm quoting here, Come obtain an unspecified quantity. We do not know what they are referring to. Quantity of what, exactly? Gorad huffed in irritation. Alright, that probably covers our intelligence failures. Operations, why do I not own this planet? Commander, we had four engagements with these humans to this point. The first engagement was conducted in the standard way. The subsequent three were more impromptu. In our first engagement, we adhered to the standard procedure. We approached the human settlement in formation and offered honorable combat on standard terms, with the winner retaining possession of the settlement and all non-combatants. After the standard response time elapsed, we fired a warning shot in the form of an airburst-detonated personal explosive device over the one of the structures. At that point, weapons fire began from, so far as we can tell, nearly every window facing our formation. At no point did any humans respond to our backcall. They simply opened fire from cover and laid waste to our formation. They did, however, issue their own challenge. We do not believe that we scored any hits in that engagement. In the after-action, we analyzed the actions and responses from both our warriors and the humans based on input from the intelligence unit. We determined that the likely issue was that these particular humans, being members of the agrarian caste, were unaware of the accepted laws of combat. You will recall, Commander, that the three of us had a conversation on this topic immediately afterwards. At the time, our collective decision was to provide the human military caste with a reasonable period of time to respond, arrive on planet, and set up. We assumed that the human settlement would call for military assistance. Commander, intelligence interrupted, it should be noted here that we have detected no communications from the human settlement at all. Obviously, the humans must have some manner of interstellar communications. We've observed three vessels, classified as interstellar bulk carriers, arrive, followed by a flurry of intense orbital and suborbital flight activity, followed by the vessel's departure. We interpreted this as a supply ship delivering supplies to the settlement and retrieving foodstuffs from it. We detected no communications between the surface and the vessels. Obviously, such operations cannot be conducted without communications of some kind, as we must assume that the humans have some form of interstellar communications that we cannot detect. That is a reasonable assessment, operations. Please continue. 
Commander Gorat said. Our second engagement arose from our decision to scout and gather intelligence while we waited for the human military cast to arrive. Scout Subunit 3 approached a set of human structures approximately five callons away from the main settlement. We ordered them out of there to investigate a collection of structures set up away from the main settlement. We assumed these must be unrelated to the main settlement and, therefore, likely military in nature. According to the one survivor and the subunit's personal data loggers, Subunit 3's approach the first structure and found it to be agricultural equipment storage, but unoccupied. They then approached the second structure. It was found to contain some kind of machinery. We believed it to be a water pump, filtration plant, and other similar equipment. Scout Subunit 3 then approached the third structure. That structure turned out to be a self-contained quarters. The subunit entered the structure and was almost immediately attacked by the human occupant. This human was quite small and was unable to produce actual harm on subunit. However, having been challenged, the subunit returned fire, dispatching the human with six shots fired. Shortly thereafter, the human engaged the subunit with steel blades. Again, having been challenged, the subunit engaged the human and killed it, this time with eight shots fired. As the subunit examined the rest of the structure, a third human, this one significantly larger than the other two, entered the structure. It found the first two humans, whereupon it made an exceptionally loud vocalization. We believe it to be some manner of distress vocalization that does not translate. This third human produced a weapon and attacked the subunit. It shot two scouts from behind before retreating from the structure. The other four scouts pursued the human out of the structure. The human re-engaged the scouts from the first structure with a significantly larger weapon. The human issued a challenge that we do not understand. He called out loudly, and I quote, Come obtain an unspecified quantity, you male spawn of a canid. We have absolutely no idea what that is supposed to mean, but it does appear to be a direct challenge given its usage in both engagements. The other two engagements largely went the same way as the second. Sector Commander Gorad made a thoroughly exasperated noise. Are you seriously telling me that we lost an entire unit of scouts, six subunits, in four engagements with these humans? Operations fidgeted slightly. No, Commander. Two of those subunits were lost in engagements with an unknown creature. We are certain that these subunits were not lost to human forces on the ground. That was no signs of incoming fire. However... In both cases, large areas were trampled and destroyed. In one case, the bodies of all sublight members were clustered together. Commander, they had been very nearly flat. Something surprised the sublight unit and quite literally crushed them all to death. They didn't even get a shot off. The creature simply attacked the sublight unit, crushed them all to death, and wandered off back into the forest. In the second case, the subunit emptied every power pack they carried and even used at least one personal explosive. We think they may have seriously injured or even killed one of these creatures. There was clear evidence of high volume of outgoing fire and a lot of blood and gore that we could not account for. Finally, there was a series of drag marks out of the area and towards the human settlement. So we think it is possible that our subunit managed to kill the creature and that the humans dragged the carcass away for some reason. 
Regardless, it represents an unknown life form. It is probably some kind of wild edible, but may or may not be native to this planet. Enough, shouted Gorad. What have we learned here, and how do we rectify the shortcomings in the future? Intelligence and operations glanced at each other, but intelligence spoke up first. Commander, we can sum this all up by the following items. First, humans do not fight with honor, or at least their non-military costs do not fight with honor. This will have an impact on the way that we engage human units going forward. Second, without more information about the wildlife in the area, we should send out every scout subunit with at least one to two warriors. The additional armor and firepower should be sufficient to deal with these creatures. Third, we must assume that these human military castes have significantly better capabilities than the non-military humans that we've dealt with to this point. For this reason, I'd advise that we send an additional warrior units as well as replacement scout units. Finally, Commander, we should issue a new standing order for all units. Under no circumstances should any unit, subunit, or individual ever attempt to acquire an unspecified quantity, even if challenged to do so by a human. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1718. Story number one. Sometimes Paranoia is Justified, written by Incrediblis Ho. As I was walking towards the ambassador of the United Federation of Earth's office, anger was all that was on my mind. These damned apes were pulling another one of their dumb stunts, and I was here to stop them. Targanius was a star system on the border of both of the UFE's territory and that of the Garhaean hosts, it contained many valuables, several worlds which plenty of rare metals needed for the construction of starships. On top of that, Targanius IV would make for an excellent colony. However, the UFE, in their hubris, had decided to claim this system for themselves. This would not stand. The hosts were the most influential power in the whole galaxy. None would oppose them. And so, there I was, about to either threaten the UFE's ambassador into giving us a system, or declare war outright. When he had finally reached the ambassador's office, he stormed inside, not even asking. The human ambassador, a man called Felix Smith, sat in his chair, calmly examining a holopad. He looked up. I didn't know that you were coming. What can I do for you? A smile appeared on his face. I would have none of it. I looked at the ambassador in the eye. Weak, pathetic humans! I muttered to myself, Ambassador, it has come to my attention that you have occupied the Targania system, a system that we have claimed, I loudly declared. If my intel was correct, they don't know that we have been mobilizing at their borders. They'll have no chance to say no to our demands, unless, of course, they want to die. The ambassador looked at me. We claimed it first. As is clearly described in the agreement of the Seven Moons signed in 2187, he declared. Wrong! That was what he was. I wasn't here to convince him. I was here to deliver a declaration of war. I spoke again. As I was saying, this violates common galactic treaties about rights of nations in space. As such, Gahayan hosts have seen it fit to declare war upon you. The ambassador laughed. <laughs> All due respect, ambassador. That would be ridiculous. I'm sure we can use diplomacy and discuss this matter as civilized beings, he said smugly. The sheer arrogance of that man. 
I should crack his skull for that. The humans have no fleet, no army, no military force which could compare to that of the host. I don't think you understand the situation, Ambassador, so I will explain it to you, I said. I took a step forwards. The Garhaean host currently feels the largest fleet and the greatest army of all time. We are apex of the galaxy, conquerors of a thousand nations. Surrender or be crushed, I proudly and boldly proclaimed. The human ambassador got out of his chair. Really now? he asked. A mischievous smile formed in his face. I am debating you on the fact that you have the greatest fleet, he said, still smiling. However, I will ask you this. Can a nation exist without food, metals, minerals, and other such goods? What are you trying to tell me? You arrogant fool, I demanded to know. I could not tolerate this fool any longer. Most of your economy is not owned by your government, actually. Almost none of it is, he said. A large part of your agricultural industry is owned by Green Prospect, a company which is human and operates under human law. The ambassador smiled. That wasn't true. Most of the agricultural sector was owned by Crickens. This idiotic bluff was not going to work. Lies! Most of that industry is owned by Crickens. Your foolish intimidation attempts do not work on me. If it were owned by humanity, it would have been listed. Liar. Oh, but it is. Crickens is a branch of Green Prospect, according to galactic law. If a company is a branch of a different company, the branch's HQ and primary species must be named, not that of the main company. The ambassador smugly replied. He spaced undeterred. That is not the spirit of the law, ambassador, and you know it. Why would you do such a thing for anything but trying to sabotage someone's economy? I furiously replied. And why would you claim an entire system was anything but the purpose of conquering them? Even if that goes against the spirit of the law, Ambassador. The last part was said with a distinct tone, almost mockingly. That does not explain your outright exploitation of galactic law, I stated. The Ambassador was getting on my nerves. They must have known our plans. Call it what you wish, Ambassador. We call it ensuring the security of our nation, he calmly stated, not intimidated in the slightest by my threats. It's either your species, his paranoia, or evidence that you are clearly spying on us, human. I yelled at the man. This was driving me mad. The human smiled and simply replied, Sometimes paranoia is justified. End of story. Story number two. An introduction to proper terminology and procedures written by Wegian Warrior. The door dilated, then contracted. I glanced up. Remembering just in time not to show teeth as I smiled at the clearly nervous, cat-like Amoy that acted as the ship's guard and general messenger. Friend Josh, it she, I reminded myself, said softly, First Engineer Arliak sends his greetings and humbly requests your presence in the drive compartment. The new human apprentice has arrived. Thank you, Skosk, I replied as I got up, hair brushing the low ceiling. I'll make my way there and on uh, even if it is my rest period. The Amoy dipped her tail, then darted out before the door was fully dilated. I followed her at a more relaxed pace. After all, this was not a crisis, and it would not be good for the ship's crew's nerves to see the third engineer run towards the engine room. So, uh, you meet Arliak briefly? Yes, sir. Don't call me that, please, and be careful around him. 
His nerves are, uh, giving him a bit of trouble. If he'd been human, I would say he has a bad and growing case of PTSD. The young man before me nodded respectfully, seemingly standing at attention, even at rest. I, on the other hand, was leaning up against one of the throbbing plasma conduits. Each pulse told me that everything was all right with the engine. Let us saunter over to the main drive, and I'll fill you in on the, uh, uh, shipboard procedures and terminology. Uh, you're fresh from the academy. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, uh, yes. Number five in my class, um, what, what should I call you? Most of the crew just call me friend Josh, I said, as I led the way deeper into the drive compartment. With emphasis on friend, but Josh will do. Or boss, if you want to be formal. Ah, here we are. I paused as I let the young fellow take in the majesty of the subspace drive. Now, I said, after he had picked his drawer up off the floor, this is real life and not the academy. We do things a little more uh, rough and ready, and we follow a few different terminology to help calm our Liak's nerves and make things easier for him to report to the captain. The young man nodded, eyes taking in the various objects secured to the work table. I reached out and grabbed one of them. This is one of the most useful tools. This is a percussive reminder and disassembler. The P.R.A.D. Uh, it's a crowbot. No. It is a percussive reminder and disassembler. Its main use is to remind various devices and machines that you're watching them, and that you will disassemble them if they keep acting up. It also works on various members of the crew, although the disassembly is not actually done on crew. But, but, um, boss, isn't that... Sort of lying, possibly, but it is easier on Oliak's nerves to report that we fixed a malfunction with the Prad, rather than telling the captain that the crazy human whacked the drive manifold until it worked. The young man nodded slowly. Moving on, this is the long-reach organic percussive inquirer, the Alropi. It's used for diagnosing any potential issues with the drives or crew. It is, uh, I mean, uh, boss, uh, it looks like a, a wooden stick. Uh, quite correct. And you poke stuff with it. If you're not sure if something's going to blow up, literally or figuratively, don't use it on any sheltoids, though. You'll puncture their gas bags, and you'll have to find your own next time when you're planet side. This one is mine. I, I see, the young man said, as he nodded again, faster this time. Very well. This is the Large Mash Percussive Convincer. It does not have an acronym, as it deserves the use of the full name every time you need it. Broadly similar, I see, to a standard 10-kilogram lump hammer. Not for use in crew, I presume. Very good. It is, however, my preferred tool for repelling raiders. The trick is where you use it for effect. The young man looked around again, smiling, with teeth, I noticed. The, the chalk marks? Very good, I beamed. I take you had an old Mike, the Xeno Engineering and Maintenance Procedures. I assumed his methods were, um, unorthodox. There is a reason the Academy keeps him. Now... The red one up there, that is for when the manifold clogs. The green ones back there are for when the injectors play up. The pink ones mark the location of the air filtration system fans. And the blue one in the containment ring for when the containment gets, uh, wobbly. And all the white ones spread across the compartment. Oh, uh, my, my own little secret. Those are for when I think Arliac or anyone from the crew needs to get out of the engine room for a while to calm their nerves. You can whack those spots as hard as you like without any effect on the drives or other systems at all. The young man grinned. So the rest you'll pick up soon enough. What do you think, well, Josh? He said as he sank into a slouch. 
I think that I need to get the high-voltage encourager out of my bag and start getting acquainted with the computer. I mirrored his grin. Ah, goody! You brought the taser! End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1719 Oh, poop! I caught a human! Written by editor number 2545. No, 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 no. This can't be right. But the more I... Look, the, the more I'm certain. That's a human in there. Oh, for gods of all things, why am human? This is supposed to be a simple, but no. Fate had to go and drop me in the poop. Looking between the image of my data slate and at the creature on the display, there was no doubt. I caught myself a human. Okay. Okay. Settle down. Maybe this isn't so bad after all. He, she, it seems calm. It's not tearing up the cargo hold. It's just sitting there looking at the hatch. Doesn't know I'm watching it. They're not psychic, are they? Flipping through the entry on humans, it seems that they aren't. But many individuals have heightened sensitivity to being observed and are hyper aware of their surroundings. Oh, great. Not psychic. Just the next best thing. This is supposed to be a simple day too, just slacking off on the beach on a deserted world, soaking up sun, breathing unrecycled air, catching some fish, but then an intrusion alarm sounded, and my shuttle sealed up tight. The only thing was it should have sealed up when something approached, not after something wandered inside and left me stuck outside. Checking the display again, the human had moved over to the hatch and was holding a comm button, you know, I can hear you talking to yourself out there, right? Oh, poop. It speaks standard with a crisp formal accent. Better than myself. Okay. You are still talking to yourself out loud, and secondly, I am a he, not an it. Why do you speak standard? Because everyone speaks standard. No, no, no. I mean, you're supposed to be extinct. There are no more humans. Not for a really, really long time. I'm just not extinct. Why are you trying to steal my shuttle? I'm not trying to steal your shuttle. I saw it here, so I came to see if I could hitch a ride. If you're not trying to steal it, why did you sneak past the sensors? Because I didn't know if the owners were friendly. So you were trying to steal it? No, I just didn't want to get shot because I said hello and startled someone. Then why didn't you just calm the shuttle from the distance? Because I don't have a com. Okay, that's a, a good point. Uh, you don't look like you have much with you. Look, I had some trouble with my ship, and I had to evac with a shuttle, but I collided with some debris on separation. I crashed here and camped out in the Nastasis pod until my senses picked up yours, ship and shuttle. My shuttle is pretty banged up, but I was able to do a short hop near here, and then walk the rest of the way over. Huh. You know, that sounds like a made-up story. Regardless, that's what happened. I could see him smile at through the display. Lots of teeth, but pretty flat. No fangs. And the chuffing sound was laughter, I think. Okay, maybe this isn't as scary as I thought. But gods, there will be a nest full of trouble when I return home and my logs were scanned. Government agencies and God knows who else will be crawling up my pooper. I mean, I think I have the only human left in the galaxy, so... The question is, will I get a reward, or will I disappear? What do you mean by the only human? Oh, poop. I have to stop talking out loud. Um, I was just joking. Humans are extinct. The galaxy hasn't seen humans in centuries. What? 
your home world kind of blew up. Uh, then, then your colonies, one by one, blew up. All were deserted. Yes, I know that part. We were attacked and we were at war. The records don't say anything about a war, but remnants of human civilization carried on in some fleets. A few smaller bases and small groups, all solo humans, wandering from place to place. How long was I in stasis? I don't know. How would I know? I just met you. Sorry. This time I was talking to myself. Damn. Can I have my shuttle back, please? I don't know. Can you? I mean, you have me locked in here and you're out there with the keys. Oh, yeah. How do I know you won't attack me and then steal my shuttle if I open the door? Well, I assume you have the shuttle code and I don't know the codes. So if I attack you, then I still don't have the access codes and I'm still stuck here. Oh, yeah. I propose that you open the hatch, offer me a ride back to wherever you are from. You don't even have to go out of your way. Just get me some form of civilization, and I promise not to try and steal your shuttle. That sounds like what a shuttle thief would say. Get spaceborne and then bonk me on the head, and goodbye shuttle. Well, if you don't trust me, even then a little, then you're stuck outside while I am in here. I can catch fish and food. I have lots of fresh water. You don't, so I could wait until you get weak and then drag you out. No poop. How long can a human go without food and water anyhow? I better look that up. Well, since I seem to be in the cargo hold, I bet there are some tools that I could find. And once I get bored, I could start disassembling things. Glad I checked. Humans can go a long time without food or water, and gods! They were dense. He'd be hard to move. Don't do that. That would be bad. I, I have an idea. I'll move back and open the hatch from a distance, and you exit my shuttle and let me back on board. Okay, that sounds fine for you. How about my ride out of here? I have to take you back. You know how much trouble I would be once the system was scanned and my files show that I found a human, but then it just left the human on a desert planet. About that, uh, suppose I don't want to be found. I can't do anything about that. My ship's system will be automatically scanned as soon as I duck and everything is autologged. So uh, they'll know whether you want them to or not. Who are they? You know, the government. They have the logs of every civilian ship scanned every time the ship docks. Okay, that's new. Any way around the scan? I'm sure someone is smuggling and has it figured out, or knows who to bribe. But us normal people don't. Why were you worried about disappearing earlier? Stories, you know. Sometimes a ship comes back from somewhere. Then it's gone by the registry and crew is never heard from again. But you never actually know anyone would happen to just... Stories. That doesn't sound good. I deal with that when we get there, I guess. So, let's do this. Stepping back to the tree line and concealing myself somewhat, I trigger the hatch door. A moment later, the human steps out and looks around the clearing before he looks straight at me. He shouldn't be able to see me. Humans really were nearly psychic. Might as well step out into the open and see what the human did. I have no reason to be surprised, but the human did what he said he would and walked away from the hatch and allowed me easy access to the shuttle. Steve took his finger off the comm button and waited in front of the hatch, waiting for it to open. He smiled as he was becoming quite the strange day. As the hatch slid aside, Steve stepped out into the sunlight and took a look around, eyes searching for his strange benefactor. There at the edge of the tree line, an outline that didn't quite match the background. Some kind of stealth suit, maybe. Still smiling, Steve walked off to the side away from the shuttle. 
Once he was away from the hatch, his new friend stepped out into the open. Steve couldn't help himself. He stared wide-eyed. Standing in the clearing was a lizard nearly meeting Steve's own height and standing on two legs, wearing a long vest-style garment with a tool belt, looking almost like a Terran gecko, tail, sticker pads on his hands, and a big googly eyes and all. A boom washed over the pair as something over them broke the sound barrier on the atmospheric entry. Both of them looked to the sky, searching. Oh, poop! Pirates! End of story. Story number two. Human ships have no guns, written by Shadow of a person. Human ships have no guns. This was a lie. They, of course, had the same anti-meteor armament as any other ship. But as far as self-defense went, nada, zilch. Now, see, as a pirate captain, this had always rather delighted Zylorch. Unfortunately for them, humans rarely strayed out of their home systems. On their own ships, at least. In their home systems, you see, attacking a human ship would earn you a prompt railgun slug between the bows. But out here, well... The HMS Everloving floated serenely between the crosshairs of the AES murder. The murder fired a warning shot over the Everloving's port. Thirty seconds. The murder opened comms for the Everloving and began their state ultimatums. The captain of the human ship smiled and they replied, Twenty seconds. What do you mean by that? If you do not lay down your arms and surrender at this moment, me are going to blow you out of the sky and... Ten seconds. Don't interrupt me. We all know you're helpless as a minnow out here. We'd prefer to keep this a civil-like, but we will shoot you out of the void if we need to... Three. Two. One. As a flash of light, the telltale pseudo shockwave of an incoming near-field hyperspace jump. Perhaps the pirates noticed the signs of their doom before it hit them. You see, there are two ways to go very fast in the universe. Hyperspace is clean, civilized, and easy to prevent. Point to point in an instant. Now warp. Warp is useless. It takes ten years to break the light barrier, and it doesn't get better from there. But you see, the ten-ton rod of tungsten, now next to the AES murder, had been accelerating for more than ten years. How much more is rather immaterial? It only needed to go ten meters. Hyperspace jumps are clean and civilized, but they don't slow you down one bit. A pirate ship directly in front of you, now that slows you down plenty. Although, well, it's not really a pirate ship after that. Human ships had no guns. Well, not the serious type of gun that could knock anyone out of a fight. People who attack human ships have guns. They're downright bristling with them. They have plasma cannons, rail guns, mash drivers, the lot. And, most valuable of all, they have 30 seconds. After that, they have so many charged ions caught in the solar winds. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1720. Story number one. Xenophobia, written by the R guy. Humanity. That name conjures up many emotions and feelings for the galactic community. Most would consider humans brutal, savage, and xenophobic, but a species that generally sticks to their borders. The Karshitartics of the Ithath conglomerate believe them to be scared. Five hundred years ago, humanity was the opposite of its current selves. They were eager and happy 
full of joy and hope. All this would be snuffed out when the Yikgyur found them. The Yikgyur were warmongers who were violent in their expansion. They lost Sirius V, home to more than four billion inhabitants. The humans changed after this attack. They reverted to a time I know too much about before they left the confines of their atmosphere. A time that still scars me to this day, many years after I first researched the topic. The humans started a war of such ferocity that the Yikgyar crumbled within two years, losing nearly 500 million soldiers. But that was only the beginning. What came next was revenge. The humans started by taking the Hive Queens from this sanctuary and torturing them live in front of the whole universe. Those recordings were archived. I've seen them. And it took 14 hours to finish the torture tapes and took me months to recover from the emotional damage. The human Yakgar conflict was relatively unheard of around common circles until this point. After broadcasting the Hive Queen's torture, the Yakgar civilians started getting herded into concentration camps. The entire galaxy noticed, and they condemned it so much the galaxy army was built to stop the genocide. Unfortunately, the army got bogged down, for the humans had adapted their ground, air, and sea combat techniques to this new environment. Scholars started digging into human history, and what they found was horrifying. War dating back 150,000 years, twice as long as the most vicious races in the galaxy. After this revelation, the Coalition armies retreated from whence they came, unwilling to lose billions on an enemy that would fight till the end. So the Yakgar genocide continued. 26 billion Yakgar were killed in an end of the genocide, and only 500,000 survived. Thus, this species' entire history was burnt in human flames. The worst part, it only took the humans 44 years to do it. Even to this day, nearly 500 years after the events, some beings still shudder at the names of those survivors spoke of. New Melbourne, River's End, New Petersburg, Oblitus Urbus, and Unit 5492. As the stories of those places slowly trickled out of the newly conquered territory, things like human coat of arms and salutes started getting banned across the galaxy. What the humans did is considered the vilest and most hateful thing this galaxy has ever seen. So the humans retreated into themselves, entering a radio silence for four 106 years. Nothing came out of human territory, and many thought that they'd died out. But 50 years ago, the silence broke with a simple message. They got what they deserved. We are not sorry for what we did to them, but are you the same as them? We hope not, because we will give the galaxy a second chance. So diplomats were sent out with only the galaxy's basic knowledge on appearance plus the shoddy translator, hoping that the humans still spoke English. Luckily, the language had only undergone minor changes, and the humans hadn't changed much either, only growing taller. I was not one of those people. I came much later. But from what I got from my older colleagues, it was tough, with bombs being mailed in every week. I've only been here for one Earth year, and it's been relatively pleasant. But I rarely go outside the compound walls, and it is not nice when I do. Since the early days, the compound has built up significantly, introducing new embassies and facilities, taking up an entire one-kilometer-square island. 
so I have everything I need to be a historian. Half of this may be because Embassy Compound is on Earth, other heartland of the human race. So we get a lot to talk about Xenos violating Earth's natural beauty. The one time I did leave the Embassy, however, was horrifying. It was in January 30th that marked the anniversary of the glassing of Sirius V, and I was sent out to an old library to find a book about some human general named Hannibal. As I left the island, I could not help but think of the stories my co-workers told. Then, as the boat docked on the city harbour, I felt the eye of the humans on me, more stunned than anything else. Then the anger set in, and I got my first taste of human rage. Why does a rat like you get to go out in your hidey hole on today of all days? One male yelled before another male followed up with, Go back to your home planet, you rat. Then a female chimed in, You're not welcome here. Finally, a female threw a stone at me before some bodyguards herded me into a vehicle and away from the enraged humans. That was my first time meeting a human civilian, and I've met others since, with most being pleasant to speak to. However, I feel like those emotions I saw were that of a mother seeing her son's killer at his funeral, so I can only see why they must have been angry. I would probably have a similar reaction. However, their actions would have been even more true. Those people were taught about the lives of those lost to the Yukir attacks would have the personal connection, thus more emotion. The first page of Kachatad, Texas, Inside a Genocide, a collection of stories from humans and the Yukir. End of story. Story number two. Weaponized food, written by Scooby Wagon. Zixnok was thoroughly confused. Here they were in a combat hole, waiting for the Kurali to show up, and Steve, Zixnok's partner in this particular insanity, was talking about human foods or something. So, uh, you hey humans weaponized your food. No, 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 Steve said. I mean, uh, they've always been pretty tough, but we domesticated them, I, I don't know, centuries ago or something. Uh, but but the thing is, that they're super smart and can break out of an enclosure. When that happens, they breed pretty quick and they go feral. Your food is feral? Well, no, I mean, uh, they used to be domesticated, but a few of them escaped a few years ago and we haven't been able to cull the whole herd. You're telling me that you humans brought a wild terror to our colony world? Well, uh, I mean, as long as they, um, uh, oh... Steve's head popped up over the berm in front of them, as he motioned Zuxnok to be quiet. Yeah, I think they found one of the balls, Steve said, as he scanned with his night vision optics. Suddenly, there was a loud squealing noise and some crashing through the brush on the far side of the clearing. Oh, that's not going to end well for them. I think Hogzilla found them, not the other way around. Zuxnok poked his head out and looked through his own night vision optics. About that time, the Corali patrol opened fire with the plasma rifles. A few scored hits, but most shots were wild and the boar didn't slow down in the least. I don't think the plasma rifles are effective against thick hide like that, Steve said. Uh, good to know. The pit closed the distance to the six Corali in only a few seconds. The Corali, for their part, decided to hold their ground. Either bravery or stupidity, Zixnok couldn't tell. But the rate of plasma fire increased wildly as the boar, Zixnox, could now tell that it was an enormous, using the Corali as a scale reference. 
ran into their midst, trampling, throwing, and goring any Corrali dumb enough to let it get close. At that range, the Corrali were clearly hitting the animal with at least some of the plasma fire, but that just seemed to make the creature even more angry. Prior to this moment, Zuxnok would have not thought that possible. In less than a minute, all six Corrali were on the ground. Only one of them was moving. A few seconds later, there was an audible woof of a small explosive device going off, and all was still. Steve stood up. Well, I think that's it for tonight anyway. Want to come check out the scene with me? Zixnok agreed and cautiously approached the scene of the fight. As they approached, they could hear a deep huffling noise. Then they arrived. It became clear that the noise was. The ball was still alive, though terribly wounded. Steve walked up behind it, put a muzzle of his slug thrower against its back of its head, and pulled the trigger. A loud bang, and all was silent. Can't let the poor thing suffer, Steve said, but uh, that, my friend, is why one does not mess with a 1,200-pound pig. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1721 They Hail from the Void, written by Rugi 2001 When the Council first found out about the humans, nobody could believe it. A sapient species, hailing from a void zone. Exposing counts are too low in these void zones for the particle to have any sizable effect on matter, hence the region's designation. Before humanity, the very same idea that sentient life could even develop under such conditions was thought impossible. The human sector, in particular, has the hex density of one particle per cubic light year, effectively creating the worst void zone known thus far. And, technically, it was the humans that found us, but cause yes, we never thought of scanning void zones. Our technology is not capable of such a feat, nor we had any interest in doing such a thing. So, when the first human craft came out of the void zone, hailing on a rather crude FTL engine, the Council, not without a lot of shock, finally registered the existence of this new, weird species, and naturally, we made first contact. The video of the meeting can be found at the link I'm sending you all, and I highly recommend watching it before our next class. Anyways, as I was saying, humans had their first contact with the Council's Trixillian Ambassador. It is recorded that the first thing the Ambassadors noticed was the spaceship's technological level. They noted an incredibly void dynamic design, a visibly superior craftsmanship and technological level than those of the very intergalactic Union. They called the head engineer of their own ship to even ask her what she thought about such a spacecraft, only to receive further confirmation that the human's incredible science. Then began the long act of first contact. The ambassadors contacted the human craft, named Ad Astra, and started exchanging first basic scientific principles and simple extralingual information in order to establish a common ground between two species. At first, there was something in the humans' responses and messages that didn't sound right. But nobody on the Trixillian spacecraft, the Space Queen, could exactly point out what, nor could they see it as more than a confused hunch. While the scientists of the two species talked and elaborated on their knowledge exchanging various information, in slightly less than a standard hour, 40 minutes by human criteria, the human software succeeded in coding the first crude translator. 
When they sent their first message coded in Alfurian, the Trixillian language spoken on the Space Queen, the crew was shocked. Who were these humans that could decipher an alien language, the first alien language so fast? The Trixillians began asking questions upon questions about the humans' home planet, their biological species, their culture, and so on and so forth, while also asking a plethora of different questions on every little thing that they could think of. Again, the Trixillians found it odd, but couldn't properly see the reason. After giving the humans a whole biology guide to their, well, biology, the humans asked for a formal meeting, face-to-face, they said. They promised that they wouldn't present any threat whatsoever to the crew, and offered to let only three humans on board of the Space Queen. It was weird and possibly a trap, but the ambassadors thought that only three specimens wouldn't be able to pose a real danger anyway, and accepted. At this condition that the humans would undergo a series of medical and security tests to ascertain the safety of the Trixidian crew. The humans accepted and immediately started closing in with their spaceship. There is no video recording of the event, but I think it is important to know that the Ad Astra slid to the side of the Space Queen and then morphed, creating a docking port that, according to the Trixillian's testimony, never existed until moments before. Yes, class, the Trixillian crew that witnessed it all said that the human ship morphed as if alive and grew a docking port that wasn't there until a moment before. How it happened is a mystery, and a clear sign of an unknown advanced technology. Quoting the words of Ambassador Ilya, Here are the photos of the three humans that boarded the Space Queen. From left to right, you can see their captain, the head scientist, and the head engineer. What they are wearing is a spacesuit to ensure no bacterial or viral exchange between two species. In the photo, Three bipedal creatures, four limbs in total, stand in a decontamination chamber. They wear grey-black spacesuits that seem to adhere to their body like a second skin, highlighting and emphasizing their body's form, and that show no apparent signs of seams or joints. All three of them seem excited. The one on the left bent over a small window to look inside the Space Queen's interior. They happily complied to every test the Tractillians did confirming the medical information previously shared. Then they finally sat down at a meeting table in front of the Space Queen's captain, the Trixillian ambassador, and a team of scientists of various fields. Then they began talking. They started from the biology field and branched out. It was clear to everybody on board that they were extremely happy, for whatever reason, and the meeting went off without a hitch. They talked about their home planet Earth, a median-sized globe with an axis inclination of 23.5 degrees, different biomes, and an elliptical orbit. Until the Trixillian scientists asked about their physics, and if they had found all 15 fundamental particles, to which the human scientists answered that there were actually 17, and started listing them. And so, the Trixillians discovered that there were actually 18 fundamental particles, because the humans didn't know about the Hex boson. How could that be possible? How could a space nay, a sapient species, not know about the Hex boson? How did their technology even work then? Where exactly were these humans coming from? The Trixillians asked, shocked. And the answer left everyone speechless. These humans hailed from the very center of the Void Zone. They were a void-dwelling species. No wonder their technology had seemed so different, so alien. It worked with different physical laws. 
No wonder they hadn't shown the slightest speck of psychic ability on their medical reports. No wonder they didn't know what the Hex boson was. They couldn't observe it on their home planet. Nor on any of the colonized ones. Because yes, there had been a space-faring species for centuries already, but they had never ventured outside the void. They had terraformed more than a hundred planets and colonized another ten already favorable to life. No wonder their FTL engine was so crude and yet so advanced. It worked without the Hex reaction and on a technology far more advanced than ours at the same time. When we tried explaining these things to the humans and showed them the Hex person, their scientists were utterly shocked. What we knew was the natural effects of the Hex person, they called it magic. Ghosts, transmutations, telekinetic alien species, psychic abilities, everything that was the norm for all the galaxy was unknown and a mystery to these humans. Then they explained the fundamentals of their technology. Nanites, controlled nuclear fusion, gluonic engines, pseudo-gravity wells, quantum-entangled communication to us. Whatever they mentioned was far more magic to us than we showed them. Spaceships, able to change their form in the deep void of space, as if made of sentient metal. Spacesuits that merged with the skin like if they were alive. Engines that used energy so powerful that they could easily destroy half a country if detonated. When we measured Earth's magical ability, as the humans had named it, i.e. the concentration of Hexperson, their planet results in being a class 10 anti-magic world in their own categorization, an A++ death world in the Galactic Union's tiered scale. Because, as you all know, the laws of physics change inside the void zone and many species can't even survive in such a harsh environment, depending on the Hex boson's presence, hence the death of Death World. Apart from the initial shock and the awe at each other, the humans and Trixillians both found the other quite pleasant and soon signed an agreement with each other, thus starting a long interspecies relationship that, to this very day, still stands strong. The humans then spent the next century studying the Hex boson, rapidly becoming the leading scientific species of the entire Union, and divulging their own technology to the entire space community, de facto throwing all of us in the future by many centuries. The year this fateful encounter took place was 6667 by I, or 2143 AD in human terms, and to this day, in my opinion, we still haven't witnessed the full potential of this new, incredible species that is humankind. That is all for today, class. For next time, watch the video I'll send you and read the chapter about the human brain, as we'll speak about their psychic abilities. Have a nice day. Professor Ulrich Senner, Introduction to Lessons About Human Magic, Intergalactic Academy of Philosophy and Knowledge of Galara 7730IY. End of story. Tales from Outer Space, 1722. Story number one. Shall we? Written by Wegian Warrior. The small, sleek vessel shuddered as the breaching charge turned the airlock into a gaping wound in the thin steel skin. As it hung in the void, a transparent, flexible, proboscis-like boarding tunnel snaked outwards from the larger, angular vessel attaching itself to the wound and regurgitating a few dark figures into the small vessel. The boarding proboscis retracted, having served its purpose. 
Pushing through the narrow corridors, the boarding party walked fast, scurrying on six limbs. They deftly avoided damage to their pressure suits as they made their way to the engine compartment. Even if their vessel had, by careful aiming, killed the small vessel's ability to thrust, the reactor was still a potential danger. Precious seconds and minutes went by before the alien controls were understood and the reactor was rendered safe. Red lights flashed in the corridors as the boarding party made their way to the other end of the stick vessel. Passing and ignoring cargo holds, the boarding party scampered and glided as the artificial gravity spun down, bereft of power as a small vessel's simple AI shut down non-essential systems to preserve what energy reserves the ship possessed. Outside, strong cables with harpoons at the end darted out from the large vessel. Tearing through the small vessel's skin, the harpoon stuck and cables tightened as the larger vessel pulled the smaller vessel closer. The boarding party chatted amongst themselves with excitement, forcing open airtight doors and jamming them open against the remote possibility of having to retreat. Pausing in front of the open door to the sleek vessel's small bridge, the boarders exchanged glances before moving in. They grabbed their hand-to-hand weapons selected to prevent the stray projectiles causing a catastrophic damage in a vessel alien to the boarding party. They scurried through the opening. The armored pressure door slid closed behind the last member of the boarding party as the light of the small room increased. I guess I should, for the sake of politeness, bid you welcome aboard. The voice came from a small figure, slowly unfolding itself from the consoles near the far end of the bridge. However, I choose not to, not since you clearly do not have peaceful intentions. The one that was leading the boarding party scuttled to the front, staring down at the four-limbed figure. We are acting in accordance with orders. This vessel is an approach to a blocked planet. This vessel refused to turn around. This vessel refused inspection. This vessel... A klaxon interrupted the tribe. The small figure reached out, touched something on the control panel, and a loud noise stopped as suddenly as it began. Yes, yes, the small figure said. The thing is, your blockade is killing innocent people, and this vessel is not carrying any contraband, so why should I waste reaction mass and let you pick my ship apart? The one that was leading the boarding party gazed at one of its group with several eyes. From scans... 1,880 standard units of ammonium nitrate, 120 standard units of mixed long-chained hydrocarbons, mostly alkanes and cycloalkanes. The one that was leading swiveled its head and stared at the small figure. Worthless. Why smuggle what can be made on the planet? What was that alarm? The small figure shrugged before replying. I carry what I was tasked to carry. As for the Glaxons, pressure loss. There's a hard vacuum between here and the air block now. The one that was leading was quiet for several seconds. Decoy, deception, worthless cargo, pulling our vessels away from the blockade, planning to send military cargo on different vessels while distracted. But we see through your ruse. We will leave and cut your vessel free. Return to our patrol. Plan fail. Close, the human figure admitted as it picked up a crude club, festooned with spikes and hooks. But, uh... As we say back on home, no cigar. The plan was not to lure you off station. It was to destroy your vessel. We knew, of course, that you would render the reactor safe. 
but there are other ways to create explosions. The small figure swung the club back and forth a few times. Time, it continued. Time is what was needed. Time to pump the fuel oil into the tanks of fertilizer. Time to have your vessel reel me in like a harpooned whale. Time to initialize the crush switches which installed on the hull of this vessel. Fool, like all human. The one who was the leader said, Vacuum is not issue. We have pressure suits. We can return to airlock and signal your vessel. The AI started the oil pumps when you breached. The small figure continued, as it had not been interrupted. That part of your operation took four minutes and thirty seconds. Initializing detonator circuits were another forty-five seconds. You spent two minutes and forty-five seconds from the breach to the reactor shutdown. Another three minutes from engineering to bridge. I've kept you talking for almost three minutes so far. At current speed, there will be a hull-to-hull contact in less than two minutes. 600 tons of fertilizer makes for one hell of a firecracker. You may or may not be able to get the airlock in time if you leave right now. The small figure showed its teeth and swung the hooked club again. The one who was leader bent backwards as a sharp edge almost touched its suit. The only switch to the bridge pressure door is behind me. And the small figure said softly, And I have a weapon that'll rip and tear your suits. So, shall we dance? End of story. Story number two. The Debrief, written by Wegian Warrior. There was a the sound of fast footsteps on the tile and metal floors of the facility, stopping hurriedly at one of the heating pits. As the echoes died away in the cavernous room, the wounded in the pit awoke and rose. Standing nearest the pit, flanked by medical personnel and flunkies, stood a figure in a lavish outfit. Its six legs were spread wide, asserting dominance. The wounded bent its remaining legs in submission, barely trembling in the cool air. Confirm that you were leader of two to the power of four, part of the ground forces attached to the assault carrier 5-43, tasked with securing target 67-496. The wounded trembled openly as it replied, Confirmed. That was the tasked objective. Confirmed you failed to secure 67-496, despite additional support from other assets. Confirmed. Then received reports of unsatisfactory. You were the highest surviving leader. Amend your report. All details. The wounded sat on its knees, forehead wrinkling with all effort of recall. Target 67-496 was a medium-sized settlement. The wounded began. Defending forces assessed between 2 to the power of 6 and 2 to the power of 7. Defending force tech level assessed to... Preliminary information is known, the lavishly clad figure said, spreading his legs wider. Describe the attack and the deviations from plan. According to standard procedure, scan was conducted for electromagnetic radiation. Results assessed by commander to be an indicative of adaptive camouflage. Commander requested two to the power of two EMP bombs over the target area. In accordance with standard and approved procedure, continue. After EMP, visual and sensor scan showed no defending force. Commander had assessed that the detected electromagnetic radiation had been a decoy. Ordered two, two to the power of four fire units to enter target area and secure. The wounded trembled again. On approach, 
there were several minor explosions from light openings in the structures of the settlement. All two to the power of five killed or wounded. Small movements in the settlement revealed part of the defending force, clad in green, grey and black. Same reflection wavelengths as structures in settlement. The wounded paused as if waiting for a response before continuing. Commander assessed that defending force had weapons in shielded containers. Since weapons were now in the open, requested additional two to the power of four EMP bombs. Significantly more than called for in regulations. Assault force commander approved. Not an issue. Continue. Delay in bomb delivery. Defending force not visible at this point. I assess that defenders utilize non-active camouflage. Commander disagreed, stating defenders being on a tech-level gamma. For the benefit of less military personnel, state tech-level gamma before continuing. Gamma. Interstellar capable. All gamma-level civilizations are doctrinally a potential threat. All gamma-level civilizations are assessed to use directed energy weapons and... The wounded Paul's thinking. Postulate. Current assessment outdated. Continuing. After the second EMP bomb, Commander ordered advance. Proceed with care. No movement in settlement. Several small explosions under the feet of the assault force. Significant portion of force killed or disabled. I... I lost mobility and watched the rest engagement from ground. The wounded paused again, running from front limb over the stumps remaining of the two legs. Commander led from front. Large explosion. Non-nuclear. Killed commander and significant portion of remaining forces. Mechanism of killing assessed to be a cone of high-velocity fragments, likely metallic. There was a chatter from the assembly. The figure in the lavish outfit turned and stared until it died down, then returned its attention to the wounded. Defending thus emerged from settlement, counterattack, bipedal, nimble, utilizing natural cover and concealment. No power armor observed, no vehicles observed. Weapons held an upper pair of limbs, likely kinetic. Flashes of fire and crackling sound, all the assault force was resisted, were, uh, dispatched. Several of my team killed with blades, mounted to the end of the defender's weapons. The lavish figure looked at the wounded, the unspoken question loud and clear. Weapon was out of reach. After main defending force bypassed, one of the defenders came closer. No visible weapon, possibly significant mark on cladding, a red cross with a white circle. He cauterized wounds, stabilized fluids, displayed... Uh, Compassion. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1723. During contacts with humanity, you are allowed to violate the basic diplomatic tradition, written by Evgeny Mart. Many are sure that galactic diplomats decided to make an exception in the main tradition because they are afraid of people and want to reduce the number of contacts to a minimum. As a member, are the first diplomatic mission to Earth, approximately the native planet of people. I want to clarify the situation a little. Yes, we are afraid, but no, we are not afraid of people. We are afraid of their technique. As you know, the main diplomatic tradition is that all authorized representatives get to the meeting place and back on the transport of the race hosting this meeting. In this way, diplomats show their trust to the host race, which in turn can demonstrate their hospitality much earlier than arriving on the planet. If any race uses this tradition as a trap to kidnap diplomats or do some other nasty thing, 
It will immediately demonstrate to the whole galaxy its disrespect for general accepted rules, lose trust for a long time, and fall into diplomatic isolation. It seems that everyone benefits from this tradition. At least that was the case before people overcame bureaucratic obstacles and joined the Union. Another tradition to demonstrate mutual trust is that new members of the Union host the next diplomatic meeting on their planet. And it does not matter whether on their home planet or on the colony. Here the Union allows the races to hide their home for security purposes. Humanity did not have colonies, and it was not too paranoid, so the next meeting was being prepared on Earth. Representatives of races, including me, reached the human ship, which was waiting in the geographical center of the Union, generally accepted neutral territory, so that the races would not argue for the right of the place from which the meeting departed. The ship itself did not have anything remarkable. The instruments noted hundreds of nuclear warheads and solds, but they were warned that humanity loves to protect those from whom they are responsible, as well as they love weapons based on radioactive decay very much. Even if they had a bad plan, it would have been feasible without nuclear mining. It's time for departure, and so, what do you think? Which way of FTL travel did people choose? Perhaps it's the classic warp, or, if they are not very good at science, some other less stable subspace. Maybe they use a cocoon of black matter that particularly removes friction from any quarks and allows them quickly to accelerate to superluminal speed, and then slow down due to the gravitational maneuvers near the stars. Or how about a damned wormhole? We miss black holes in the galaxy so much, we need more of them. People claim that instant teleportation is much faster than warp and dark energy, which is partly true. But actually, to the surprise of people, not all races like to open black holes near their planets. Wondering why? So it takes very long time to move from the nearest neutral territory to the destination. And I want to see where they spend the remaining time advantage of a couple of hours. Clearly worth it to fly through a black hole. By the way, speaking of moving from neutral territory to the desired planet, maybe at least here they use the warp, dark energy, solar sails after all. Of course not. Did you remember those nuclear warheads on the ship? It would be better if humans used them for intimidation, because they drop atomic bombs into space behind them when they need to gain speed without a wormhole, and then accelerate due to the blast wave concentrating in their direction. Hundreds of special directed nuclear explosions are required for adequate acceleration, but as far as I know, their main governments have thrown a party in honor of the fact that they can spit on all the disarmament treaties and produce atomic weapons for civilian purposes, imperceptibly saving a certain percentage of military warehouses. Oh, I see you've prayed very well, although you were atheists before that, and still managed to get to Earth's orbit without collapsing along the way or exploding on a nuclear power keg. Well, well, well. There is already the usual anti-gravity in the atmosphere, and you can safely descend, right? Right? Humanity, for natural reasons, was left without natural resources for anti-gravity. So before the first contact, they were forgiven for having inefficient and dangerous aircraft. But now, they can buy the necessary assets from almost any race of the Union, right? 
I even have information about such a deal. We set a very friendly price for 100 galactic credits per kilogram. Well, for some reason, Guin started to scold the very concept of anti-gravity, saying something about their future colonies, where they would potentially be able to extract this natural resource decades later. Then began trying to find signs of obsolescence and poor quality on the resource, making a big deal out of a molehill. At the end of almost every sentence, unclear why, they said the number 60. In the end, they took pity and decided to reduce the price to as much as 90 credits per kilogram. May the anti-dumping regulation forgive us. And what do you think? Humans continue to scold our product, but now they said 70 at the end of every sentence. As you understand, the deal did not take place. So let me show you the human transport for the atmosphere. I really hope that you will lose consciousness. By the way, this is only a fraction of a joke because of their fighter jets 10 Gs is a very standard value. Before you find out that the human atmospheric shuttles move by burning fracking kerosene in liquid oxygen and throwing the results overboard at a tremendous speed and it happens at almost under your seats. You know... If you use jet propulsion for something other than point maneuvering, then why can't you just blow air through a pressure difference? Come on! It's the humans. Well, as far as I can see, you're still alive and even haven't had a nervous breakdown. Well, it'll end sometime. And when I say it'll end, I don't mean that idiotic human modes of transport will end. I mean that your enthusiasm and optimism will end. What is the best way to get from the spaceport to the meeting place? It seems through the air again. Don't worry, no jet engines this time. It's just a piece of iron, flying at the expanse of knives that made a couple of hundred revolutions per second over its roof. If jet power transports often have wings, so in the accident you can safely land to the ground. Then here, under an unforeseen circumstances, you'll learn human expression flattened into a pancake. I wouldn't be surprised if humanity came up with types of individual flights, for example. Put someone on a powder keg and undermine it. Or else you can just use pieces of fabric to smoothly fall from height, like tree leaves during a leaf fall. Hey, humans, these are all ideas for you. Well, it seems that there is a strong crosswind now and the helicopters are not flying. You are very lucky. Or not. Now you will have to use land transport. Well, there are already so many options to come up with something adequate. For example, electric motors. Although even here we can find a problem because part of human energy is produced at nuclear power plants. And if you consider it safe to launch a neutron into a heavy nuclei to destroy them and release new neutrons from the chain reaction, then I also attach photos of Chernobyl to the text. Returning to the topic, I represent dialogue of human engineers. One says, let's make cars powered by electricity from wind turbines and solar panels on the roof. The second, we can use hydrogen fuel. And the third says, let's use explosions of environmentally dirty fuel right in our engine, so that'll push us the pistons, and if it seems too boring, then you can put four such pistons side by side. And everyone in the room starts applauding him. Well... You reached the meeting alive. Oh, you walked on foot. It's not a bad choice. I want to make you happy. 
people didn't come up with anything strange inside the building. Ordinary stairs, ordinary mechanical elevators with emergency brakes. I'm surprised. <laughs> Kidding. Meet the escalator. If people can't come up with a new dumb mode of transport, then they just combine the existing ones. The staircase, which is driven by an engine similar to an elevator engine. If you think it's safe in comparison to the previous ones, then please, when you get access to human internet, enter the query, the escalator collapsed during rush hour, or a person was sucked into the escalator. Oh, and one more thing after all, you will have to do the same path in reverse order. That is why we have allowed our diplomats to use the transport of their races for meetings that are held on territories of humans. And you know what? Everyone likes it. The path I describe has become a popular challenge of the extreme category amongst young people. Even humans are not offended. The reactions of aliens to turbulence during landing collects millions of views. Let it remain that way, because I don't want to hear anything about human engineering anymore. What means submarine? End of story. I would quickly like to thank the Tier 5 members, Marky, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnolds, Oakfield, Lord Azrakal, and it's difficult to pronounce. Thank you very much.